is a Denver native born of Denver natives. A former Denver chief deputy district attorney, he is now an active Colorado trial lawyer. Bright, independent, and full of fun, he has been part of the media for decades. This is The Craig Silverman Show. What a world, what a life, what a day. Saturday, October 24, 2020. I want to get right to the show. Jesse Wegman is a member of the editorial board at the New York Times. That's right, I said the New York Times. He's also an attorney and an author. He gets welcomed into Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. Followed by Bernie Goldberg. Bernard Goldberg, you remember him? 14-time Emmy winner, also won the DuPont Columbia Award for journalism twice. You remember him from the O'Reilly Factor, CBS News, HBO Real Sports. He is my guest. What a conversation we have. And then there is David Kopel, one of the smartest lawyers in Colorado or anywhere for that fact. He's more conservative than I am. We don't agree on everything, but what a time we have when Craig's Lawyer's Lounge opens up yet again. Let's start with Jesse. Enjoy. Welcome to Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. Oh, what a world, what a life. What a great day when I get to welcome a member of the New York Times editorial board and a fellow attorney, Jesse Wegman, has caught my eye for a while with his amazing commentary. Jesse, welcome to Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. Thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to be here. Well, this is where prominent attorneys come to relax, tell war stories, kick around current events, nothing more current than the presidential election. And wow, is the New York Times outspoken in that regard. You were one of the people who were chosen to participate in a series at the Times called End Our National Crisis. And then your column, The Radicalizer-in-Chief, really caught my eye because I think it's so important. Jesse, tell everybody about what the New York Times is doing, why you are doing it, and why you were chosen specifically to write that column. Sure. Well, you know, I think it's no secret to anybody who reads The Times that we have a a very specific take on modern politics anyway, and that we have been very strongly opposed to the first the candidacy and then the presidency of Donald Trump from from the start. And, you know, if you go back four or five years, you find our editorials that were saying pretty much the same things that we said this past weekend in in that big package that you just made reference to. But of course, then we could only say it hypothetically. Pathetically, sort of looking forward to a to a possible Trump administration. Now that we've spent four years living under it, I think we had a lot more material to work with. So, you know, we decided that just a simple endorsement of a candidate in this race was not going to be enough. That Donald Trump is such an unusual candidate; he poses such a unique threat to the republic that he deserved his an entire section to himself, where we cataloged all of the ways in which he has we we argue harmed the country, harmed democracy 
bureaucracy, broken down civility, beaten down Americans and their and their ability to work with one another. And so that's why that's why we did it. You know, my my participation was to write this piece, as you say, called The Radicalizer in Chief, which focused on a particular aspect of President Trump's rhetoric, um, which is his incitements to violence. And I chose that, you know, when you start thinking about what does the president say and how does the president speak and what's the influence of the president's words, you know, with Donald Trump, you realize it's just it's there's too much to handle. There's too much to talk about. You couldn't possibly get to it all in a relatively short essay. So I thought the part of it that troubles me more than anything is the is the encouragement of and the incitement to violence, because I think that is really the point at which modern democratic society breaks down is when people resort to violence to resolve their political disputes. And when it is the president of the United States, the leader of the country who is encouraging and instigating that violence, I think we've never seen anything like it. And I think we should be very scared. I could not agree more. And the way you write is fantastic. I would hire you in my law firm in a minute. (laughs) I think you put together a prosecutorial package, not unlike a closing argument. Let's back up a little bit. Let's establish where you got your legal training. Just tell us a little about the Jesse Wegman story. Sure. Well, you know, I, I actually began in journalism back in the mid 90s after college. I worked at national public radio programs. I worked at the Atlantic when it was still called the Atlantic Monthly, you know, when, when magazines would come out once a month and people thought that was frequent. <laughs> and then I decided to go to law school in part because I really wanted a, an intensive legal training. And I had a wonderful time in law school. I really I learned a huge amount. I some of the best friends of my life I, I still have are from that time. But, you know, I realized pretty quickly that I was never going to be a lawyer. I just didn't have that skill set in me. And so after law school and a a clerkship in the federal courts, I returned to my life uh, in my natural habitat, which is in journalism. And I worked at the New York Observer, which is a small New York City newspaper that nevertheless uh, punched well above its weight in the uh, 90s and the early 2000s. Um, I was actually hired by a young man who had recently bought it named Jared Kushner. Wow! (laughs) So I had some experience experience with Jared before the rest of the country did. And then I made my way eventually to the Times editorial board where I've been since 2013, writing about the Supreme Court and legal affairs and bringing my own legal background to thinking about uh, the issues that affect us all. It's so fascinating what you can do with a law degree. I did not know what I wanted to do after graduating Colorado College. And my dad, who was a lawyer and his dad was a lawyer, said, why not go to law school? You can do anything with a law degree. Look at Howard Cosell, who was big back <laughs> then. He had a law degree. and I didn't know Howard Cosell went to law school. Yes. And so I did it, but I became fascinated by a lot of aspects of it. And sounds like you did too, because regardless, you kind of learned the rule book for living. And the game of life has a bunch of rules and lawyers know about it better than most. And I'll tell you this, you know, there's actually a lot of similarities between the world of law and the world of journalism. And and the one that I think appeals to me as much as any is that 
a lot of different people have a lot of different experiences of the same situation. And so it's really important to hear all those different stories and to try to make sense of what the truth is based on that Rashomon-like assessment of everybody's stories. And how much do you give credence to this person's account versus that person's account? That's something we do in journalism all the time. And it's something you do in, in the law all the time. And I, I really enjoy that because I feel like it's the best way to get at the truth of a situation. Right. And we all have to make decisions. What most motivates us. And when I was at CU Law School, I saw something on the bulletin board that the Denver DA's office was looking for interns. And I became fascinated by it because I realized that I like to stand up to bullies and violence. And it's essential that prosecutors do that sort of thing. And that's why I was so attracted to your column, The Radicalizer-in-Chief, because you are standing up to uh, bullies and violent intimidators. Well, I'm. I'm. I was happy to be able to chronicle and re- remind people of you know that element of the president's speaking style because I think, you know, I, I'm someone who, by the nature of you know the the blessings of my life, ha- have not been really subjected to the direct effects of his violent rhetoric. I think there's a lot of people in this country who have been you know marginalized people people of color, uh, Muslims, Mexicans, and other people from Latin America, I think have really been immediately and very, and in some cases, uh, uh, you know, fatally targeted by people who, if they weren't immediately incited by President Trump, certainly found common cause with him or believed that they, that they had common cause with him and have said as much to the media. So, you know, I'm, I'm happy to be able to use whatever platform I have to, to remind people of just how dangerous it is when a political leader uh, speaks in this way. Right. And this president is endangering all of us. That's my opinion, because not only his weak COVID response, but when a governor like Gretchen Whitmer imposes certain rules in Michigan, instead of having a respectful debate, he tweets, liberate Michigan, says the Second Amendment is under siege. And when those guys show up at the state house with long guns, he tweets that they were very good people who had legitimate anger. He refuses to rebuke violent agitators. You go through a chapter and verse, and I bet you had a word limit or you would have put a lot more in. Oh, I absolutely would have. My my editors had to cut things out as it was. And, uh, you know, I think what was as shocking as anything else was that even after the FBI arrested these guys for, uh, you know, allegedly plotting to kidnap the governor of a state, Donald Trump is still fomenting aggression toward her, you know, saying she, you know, they, you know, she's a dictator and people hate her. Like, I mean, I, I mean, how dare you? You know, like this is a, this is the governor of a state of your country who is doing something that most other governors were doing at exactly the same time, which was trying to attend to the needs of her people, trying to protect their lives and their well-beings, and do, you know, doing something that was completely within the bounds of normal gubernatorial action, which was to impose certain shutdowns. And, you know, these people decided, oh, well, we, we decide she's a tyrant and we're going to, the way we're going to respond to that is arrest her. Any normal political leader would say that is absolutely not appropriate. We can have our legitimate political disagreements without resorting to violence. Donald Trump just doesn't understand that. He never has. He never has understood what it means to be a leader. He, do, he doesn't know. I mean, he knows how to be a demagogue, but he doesn't know how to be a leader. Right. Most of us have an instinct to rescue a damsel in distress, not Donald Trump. He feels no empathy for Whitmer or her family. And just after she's the victim of Trump supporters attempt to kidnap her, he 
gets amusement out of his crowd chanting, lock her up, which is a form of kidnapping itself. It's just unbelievable. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've, I feel like I should be completely inured to it by now, but I just, I can't, uh, I can't ever let go of that sense of outrage because the moment I do, I think, you know, in the moment we all do, the, the game is up. Well, let's talk about something more amusing because in your piece, you come to the defense of Megyn Kelly. And did you see what Megyn Kelly tweeted about Trump's performance in his debate Thursday night? I haven't seen it yet. Tell me. She praised him to the hilts where some people on Twitter are suggesting, are you drunk? I mean, she said Trump won big and that his temperament was perfect. And this is what, four years after she started a debate by the way he demeans women and he came back that she's bleeding everywhere. I just thought that was interesting how Megyn Kelly tweeted that last night. I mean, one of the things we've seen in the last four years is the degree to which people will sort of debase themselves for the benefit of a man who would never have their backs, you know? So people all across the conservative political spectrum have come to Donald Trump's defense, either ignoring the fact or knowing and then just not caring that he would never come to their defense. And so you have that, that's what leads you to a cult of personality, right? That's what leads you to this kind of a situation where people blindly follow a leader, even if he is taking them to hell. And I, I, Megyn Kelly is only one small example of it. Uh, other people, Ted Cruz, you know, has plenty of reason to feel aggrieved by Donald Trump and yet continues to support him. And I think, you know, at this point, the people who have made their peace with who Trump is, there's nothing you can do to bring them back. I, I think they're just going to they're going to follow him all the way down. And I hope that the rest of us never forget the role that the appeasers played in this in this political moment in American history, because I think. I don't think they should ever be allowed to forget it. And I don't think they should ever be allowed to participate in American politics again without in some way having to atone for what they've done the last few years. Right. I get to write a column for the Colorado Sun. And this week, I plan on talking and thanking Donald Trump for making this ballot so easy because I'm an independent. I usually have to struggle to determine who I'm going to vote for down ballot. But this Mm -hmm. year, if you have an R by your name, I've had some Republicans come on my podcast disavow Trump. But unless you are one of those people, I have to presume that you're okay with the party of Trump. I'm not. So see you later. And that goes for people who aren't running right now, but they're public officials. When you run again, I will remember that you backed this guy. A lot of brave Republicans have stepped away. Uh, the Lincoln Project is amazing. Uh, Vic Mitchell, Cole West, they've been guests on my show. Ryan Call, former Colorado Republican chairman, good friend of the show. He's been in Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. There are Republicans stepping away, and pretty soon it's going to be too late. I'm going to remember. How about you? Oh, sure. I mean, it, I mean, it's hard in some sense to understand how people could stay with him at this point. And then at the same time, you remember that there have been demagogues throughout world history, and they have always survived, however long they survived, they've always survived because of this this cultish appeal to large numbers of people. And so, you know, I, I right, I mean, I, I would hope that if the, the shoe were ever on the other foot and I were faced with a leader of a, of a party that I subscribe to, I, like you, am an independent, but I, I certainly find that my values align <laughs> almost entirely with the, at least the Democrats or at least people on the left and progressives, you know, 
I would hope that if if I if there was ever a candidate who behaved the way Donald Trump does, I would have the courage to to break with my party and to break with the person who was in theory upholding the values that I support and say this is not okay. I cannot, you know, even though he might be appointing judges that I like and even though he might be passing laws that I like, I can't abide having someone who is so harmful to the functioning of the republic and to the safety of democracy uh, running the show. Right. Um, you know, that, so so that's I mean, all. can't you find a decent person who's pro-life or pro-gun? You know, I mean, it's ridiculous. And I <laughs> I used to do a regular radio show on Saturdays on a conservative station. And back when there were 20 or so people running for the Republican nomination in 2016, I remember that Pam Geller, who I've had on my show back in the day, I think Maybe she was less radical, whatever. She was a decent guest, and I knew her a bit personally. And when she got attacked in Irving, Texas, and somebody almost killed her, they drove from Arizona to Texas to kill her. I remember Trump going on, I think, with Megyn Kelly, and Kelly brought it up, and Trump said, oh, Geller's a showboat, and why? She she provoked that. And I thought, wow, that's a lack of empathy. Now I realize that he's probably sucking up to some people who venerate the Prophet Muhammad and didn't like Geller. Meanwhile, Geller has gone full bonkers Trump, and Megyn Kelly apparently is trying to get back there. It's just a strange world. And if you'll indulge me just one other second, when I read your column, you wrote about the Montana congressman who punched the reporter. And boy, do I remember that because. I was the guy on the radio saying that was outrageous what he did, broke his glasses, punched him. You write about it. His name was Greg Gianforte. And then I get sent to Washington with my old radio partner, Dan Kaplis, because they want us to do a show again. I'm there July 25, 2017, Salem Day at the White House. I'm interviewing Mick Mulvaney and a bunch of other bigwigs. Then I go to a reception. Corey Gardner is there. He's been a guest in the lounge a lot. But I see a guy who looks sort of familiar. And I have my 15-year-old son, Sam, with me. I say, hey, you look real familiar. I mean, Mitch McConnell was there, everybody. But I said, what's your name? He said, I'm Greg Gianforte. And so we started talking. And he was, I told him that he was the subject of a lot of talk radio disputes. And he and his wife were there. And he was remorseful about what he had done. If you recall, he went to court, he pled guilty. It was the day before the election. And he seemed to have some human realization that what he did was wrong and he was repentant. But there was the president saying, this guy is the greatest because he punched a reporter. I'm sorry for that long story, but you reminded me of Craig Gianforte. And then he ended up sending my son, Sam, a book about how to start a business. And it's just weird in this world how you run into people. Well, and now he's running for governor of Montana, right. you know. And so I, 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 it, it concerns me when people who think that violence is is a proper way to resolve disputes are running for a high elected office or any elected office, really. But you know, it wasn't even a dispute; it was just a reporter asking him a question. I remember listening to the tape. I know that reporter. He, we worked, we used to work together, and uh, he's a very good reporter. And he asked a perfectly legitimate question of a candidate, and he was basically attacked out of the blue by Greg Gianforte. Uh, attacked him out of the blue. 
I mean, maybe he's remorseful. I don't know. I, I know that, you know, he pled guilty. So I guess that's something. But, you know, I would want to see him uh, atoning for that uh, more more uh, openly and perhaps with a little more uh, uh, en- energy behind it and maybe even coming out and speaking out against Donald Trump. But I know that Republicans feel that that's political suicide right now. So uh, I doubt he's going to do that. Right. I think he felt torn between, hey, I'm remorseful about what I did and a realization that this is why Donald Trump loves me, because I got violent with the reporter. I really hate that kind of talk. Every rally, he targets the media. It's going to result in violence. I don't know if you read, we had violence here in Denver with the Nine News producer. Of course, yep. Yeah, I mean, so, and Nine News is like CNN to talk radio out there, constantly belittled. And you write about that guy in Florida who was planning attacks on CNN and God knows who else, maybe the New York Times. He wasn't planning attacks. He sent pipe bombs. You know, right. I mean, he, he, he carried out the attacks. It, the fact that they didn't succeed is just sheer luck. But, you know, he, he intended to kill uh, large numbers of people uh, just because they had political differences. I mean, this is the problem, right? It's it's not that what Donald Trump is saying could cause violence. It already has caused violence. It has been causing violence for five years now. And that's the that's the essence of the problem is that when our, you know, we look to our leaders for more than just their policies and more than just their government leadership. We look to them for moral leadership. The president of the United States is not just the head of government. He or she is the head of state. And in, in, the, in that capacity, you know, the president has to set norms. They have to set behavioral standards. They have to lead the country. That's what we look to them for. Right. And so when he when 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 you look to the president, he starts saying, yeah, let's beat the hell out of the people we don't like. Of course, people are going to start doing that. And some of them are going to go beyond beating to killing. And I, I you know, I'm I don't know what Greg Gianfort's heart looks like, but I'm I, I wouldn't be surprised if he felt uh, emboldened to tackle, a, you know, sort of this member of the enemy of the people because he'd been hearing Donald Trump yelling about how bad the press is for the last few years. So I just think that behavior is so corrosive, so destructive, so harmful, and really, I think, in any other circumstance would really be criminal. You know, incitement to violence is a crime. You know, I think Donald Trump has incited as much violence as as anybody in recent years in, 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 a, in a high-profile position. So that's why I wrote the piece, and that's why I'm so concerned about a, a potential second Trump term. And I'm worried about it happening in the next 10 days. If you think oh, about the Gene Ford incident, that was right on the eve of an election. Your buddy asked him about a health care vote, and then That's it's right. an enough question. And then you think about the lead up to the midterms in 2018 and the Trump rhetoric about an invasion. Yep. And then a follower of Trump decides that there is an invasion and he takes a gun and goes to the Tree of Life synagogue in Pittsburgh and slaughters over a dozen people. Again, and it, it doesn't even have room to fit in your column because there's been so much of this. Well, I left that one out purposefully, but I, I get the point that the general environment, the atmosphere of, of violence and aggression and the sort of terminology of, 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 of infestation that Trump promulgates really does incite all kinds of people, even people he didn't necessarily intend to incite, right? And and people that he didn't know he would incite. And that's the, that's, that's the danger of being someone who kind of encourages violence is that you are going to unleash all kinds of monsters that you weren't even thinking about. 
I'm intrigued by that. Why did you leave that out? What did it not have a certain element? Yeah, well, I think I was really aiming for people who proclaimed common cause with the president and who pointed to him as someone that they agreed with on policy or politics or or bigotry. My understanding of the Tree of Life shooter was that he sort of disagreed with Trump on a lot of things, and and I it, it became complicated. I, I I could have included it just as more evidence of attacks on groups that are, you know, minority groups, minority religious groups, or minority uh, ethnic or racial groups. And I think in that regard is absolutely part of the bigger picture of the Trump years. But yeah, I I think I was, I I think I was trying to draw some uh, indistinct lines, uh, you you know, just to be a little more, uh, at least uh, (laughs) get get the whole thing in. you'd be a good prosecutor. That's interesting to me. And I also noted that you really didn't talk about Charlottesville. You know, I didn't mention Charlottesville. It's true. Um, yeah, that's a it's a it's a fair point. I could have mentioned Charlottesville. But maybe that's because in your defense, now I'm a defense attorney and I don't even <laughs> defend yourself, but I'm not sure that Trump wanted that Unite the Right rally or realized exactly what was going on, but it was the way he talked about its aftermath that was so disturbing. It's a classic example of Trump refusing to disavow white supremacists. You know, he gets mad and his def- defenders get mad and they say, you know, nobody has been asked to disavow white supremacists more than Donald Trump. And I, I think the obvious rejoinder to that is, well, nobody has given such aid and comfort to white supremacists before as Donald Trump has. And so, yes, he's asked to do it. And no one has failed repeatedly to clearly rebuke those groups and those elements in our society as much as Donald Trump has. So I think he's being asked to do it because we're not getting a straight answer. You know, as recently as the first presidential debate, he gets asked to do it openly. He is. This is a softball. You know, I mean, anybody, any normal candidate, any normal politician would say, oh, absolutely. That is absolutely unacceptable behavior in society. And instead, he kind of plays dumb. He says, oh, you you tell me the name. I don't know what, what group you're talking about. And when they say the Proud Boys, he says, stand back and stand by. Like, really? Is that that's that's the response you're going to give to, to uh, that's what you're going to call? Uh, a rebuke or a disavowal. It just isn't that, you know, the Proud Boys themselves said it wasn't that they were they were thrilled that he said that. And they, you know, they've tattooed it on their arms. So I, I just don't I don't get the complaints that he's being asked to do this too often. He's being asked to do it because he seems incapable of doing it. Here in Colorado, I became aware of the Proud Boys when they started going to a bunch of events sponsored by the radio station. I didn't participate because I didn't believe in it. They ice rallies and they also joined with Michelle Malkin. I don't know if she's on your radar, but she sure is on mine. I'm I'm aware of who she is. Yes. I had a contentious debate on my show with her and it did not end well. She describes herself as the mother of the Groypers, the Proud Boys, She likes these people. She's now based in Colorado Springs, and she's really stirring it up with the encouragement of a certain president of the United States. And it's it's just shocking. What do you think are the repercussions? Joe Biden stumbled into a beautiful way to talk about the Proud Boys during the debate. He called them the poor boys. And instead of quoting Trump accurately when he told them to stand by, According to Biden, he told them to stand ready. So the poor boys are standing ready. Even though Biden mangled it, I thought he scored points on that in the debate. How about you? Yeah, I mean, 
Right. I mean, we should always quote people accurately, but I think uh, clearly the Proud Boys themselves understood, and I think most re- normal people would understand, uh, st- stand by as, a, as, as being the equivalent of stand at the ready. You know, that's, that's the meaning of that phrase. And I, I think they wouldn't have been so excited at it if, it if it didn't mean that. So, yes, I mean, Biden should be quoting correctly, just as we all should. But uh, he, he got the essence of what Trump was saying. Right, but he's got an excuse. He's old. He's not at the top of his game. When I endorsed him, I said he hasn't lost his fastball because he never had a fastball. But he well, right. Well, right. To, he to, to, to be fair. <laughs> he got to be fair. Joe Biden's been talking like that for the last 40 years. So, <laughs> right. You're right. I'm old enough to remember you're reading about it in the history books, but (laughs) you are a super smart guy. And I wanted to have you on because we have a proposition 113 concerning the national popular vote. And we have an expert right here, Jesse Wegman. You've written the book on that subject and I still have my ballot. Tell me why I should vote to get rid of the Electoral College as the proud Coloradan that I am. Well, Colorado uh, has, I guess, just to give a little background for people who may not already know this, and I, forgive me if, if your listeners have already uh, are already well aware of this, but Colorado is the uh, one of the latest states to join this state-based agreement in which states agree to give their uh, uh, presidential electors not to the winner of the popular vote in their own state, but to the winner of the vote in all 50 states combined, plus the District of Columbia. And when states representing a majority of electoral votes in the country, that's 270, it's the number you need to win the White House. When a, a states representing that number join this agreement, it's called an interstate compact, it takes effect and automatically the candidate who wins the most votes in the country becomes the president. I think it's a, it's a brilliant and clever and simple design to get us to a popular vote for president, which I think is the best way to elect the president for many reasons that we can talk about. But Colorado is important in this in this effort, which is now 15 years on and has 14 other member states that have joined because it's the first state of all of those states to really not be a state with sort of a his- history of democratic leadership. It was a sort of a purple state. It had been a red state, and then it was sort of purple trending blue when it, when it adopted this um, this uh, this agreement and, and joined the compact. And, you know, it is also the first state where there has been a concerted effort to pass a referendum that uh, that reverses that legislation. And so that's the ballot. That's Proposition 113 that you're talking about. My understanding is that a yes vote would keep the legislation in place and that a no vote would reject it and, and say that Co- Colorado is not going to be a member of of the compact. You know, I mean, it, it's a it's a really interesting dilemma because this is all about letting the people speak directly. Uh, but because of the nature of how the Electoral College works, it is state lawmakers who decide how their electors will be awarded. So this is an effort to let the people speak directly. And then here you have this counter effort to have the people choose not to let the people speak directly. Right. It's it's a bit confusing. Right. I've gone back and forth on it. Your book, Let the People Pick the President and your column. It wasn't a column so much as a multimedia display on the New York (laughs) Times. It was one of the most effective teaching tools I've ever seen. Congratulations, Jesse. I bet you've gotten a lot of good reaction because it held my attention and it persuaded me. There again, the great lawyer in you. Oh, great. Well, I'm glad that it persuaded you. You know, it's one of the things about the Electoral College is that the arguments that we have about it are the same ones we've been having for 200 years. 
and the myths and misconceptions are, that surround both the Electoral College and a, a national popular vote are the same ones that that have existed for basically all of that time too. And so one one of the things that's frustrating for those of us who support a popular vote is that these these myths and misconceptions continue to live. You know, they just keep they keep thriving even though they've been debunked again and again and again. So one of the goals of that video that you're talking about was to really just quickly and 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 sort of with a little bit of humor debunk and defang those misconceptions and and explain to people that the reasons that they think the electoral college is there, the things they think the electoral college would do, the fears they have about a national popular vote are all wrong. And and I hope that it did that. It sounds like it worked at least for you. It did. Although truth be told, Donald Trump is an influencer too. I mean, Colorado rejected Donald Trump and I'm not sure I want to be ruled by people in the Bible Belt, I, I just don't, or in the old, old South. And I, I think I liked it more when Colorado was a swing state, as you know, because you probably created the graphics. You represented Colorado as a swing state. Trump has made us bluer than blue, plus migration from California, et cetera. So we haven't been a swing state this year, and I'm not sure we ever will be again, but I loved your historical analysis for people who say, what about the founders? You make the point, this is not a sacred decree of the founders. Tell everybody how the Electoral College came about. It basically came about because everyone was tired and hot and hungry and they needed to finish writing the Constitution and get it out to the states for ratification. There was very little that was carefully decided about this particular element of the Constitution. They had been arguing about how to elect the president for the entire convention over the course of four months in the summer of 1787, and they just could not come to an agreement. And in early September, in the last days of the convention, it was one of the very last things to be hammered out. A few delegates get together in a side room of the convention and just bang out this very long, convoluted provision that is what we today call the Electoral College. It obviously has undergone some important changes uh, in the time since then. But, you know, it was a kind of jerry-rigged, last-minute concession to the fact that they needed to finish the document. And they said this after the fact. And, uh, and interestingly, it almost immediately failed to operate the way that they thought it was going to operate. You had the rise of national political parties uh, within a decade after the Constitution had been ratified. The founders were not anticipating that, and they hadn't written a Constitution to accommodate it. So suddenly, this, this system that they believed, at least in part, was there to ensure that you know well-educated and deliberative men could, could sit and, and ponder and make the right decision for who was the best leader of the country had turned into just a team sport. You know, you had two parties, and they were battling against each other, and the electors were on one team or the other. So I think this sort of fundamental misunderstanding is that this was ever designed as as something that was meant to do the things that people think that it was meant to do today, like protect small states or protect federalism. It was really, it was really a last minute concession. And I can't emphasize that enough. The founders themselves watched as it started to develop in the early years of the Republic, and they were horrified. You know, James Madison, when he saw this winner-take-all rule starting to be used by most of the states in the early 1800s, he tried to get a constitutional amendment passed to bar its use because he saw how distorting and destructive it was. And 200 years later, we're still having that same debate about the, these winner-take-all laws. So, so it's really, it, it really was never what people thought it was, and it doesn't operate today the way people think it does. But here's your killer point, counselor. When you write accurately that it's an artifact 
uh, and a legacy of slavery, America's original sin, because you could ask, well, why don't they just give one man one vote and then you provide the answer? It was slavery, correct? Well, slavery is 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 at the heart of every compromise at the convention, right? The convention itself survives only because the northern states agree to be essentially extorted by the southern states through the mechanism of the three-fifths compromise, which is an agreement to allow the slaveholding states in the south to have extra representation for their slaves, right? People who are not treated as people who do not have voting rights, who have no political voice, who have no human rights at all. And yet the South gets to count them toward its power in Congress. And the South isn't about to give up that extra power that it has in Congress on the doorstep of the presidency, right? So when the idea of national popular vote comes up or or whatever I, I think their term for it was, was a direct vote at the time, you know, they realize, oh, we're, well, you know, if we had a direct vote, we suddenly have a lot fewer <laughs> people uh, in our state because a lot of the, you know, up to 50% of their residents are slaves. And so they would have a uh, correspondingly uh, lesser influence in the election of the president if you had a direct vote. And James Madison says this openly in July of 1787 on the convention floor. He says, I think a direct vote would be the best way to elect a president, but the South is never going to go for it. And he says this, quote, on on the score of the Negroes. So, so this wasn't a secret then, and we do ourselves a disservice when we pretend like the founders weren't thinking of slavery throughout that convention. This is all contained in Jesse Wegman's excellent column video in the New York Times entitled How Trump Could Win Again Even If He Loses. I learned a lot. I also think that Donald Trump influences my decision because he's the kind of president who will retaliate against states. He's proved that with New York and California. He just doesn't give a damn about anybody there because they're not going to vote for him. I thought Joe Biden scored big where he said, I'll still be the president of everybody. And we've always kind of had presidents who at least say that Trump doesn't even try to hide it. He's going to punish the people who don't vote for him. That's another reason to abolish the Electoral College, because it will empower people who want to vote for Trump in California or New York. Explain that to everybody, Jesse. I would say that's the number one reason, and that gets us back to this point of those winner-take-all laws. Just to be clear what they are, the winner-take-all laws are state-based laws about how to award a state's electors. The states choose this law. This is not in the Constitution. The founders did not discuss it at the Constitutional Convention. As I said, James Madison saw these laws being adopted, and he was very upset, and he tried to get them banned from the Constitution, or he tried to get them banned through a constitutional amendment. But winner-take-all laws say that a state gives all of its electors to the candidate who wins the most votes in that state. And the problem with that is it effectively erases all of the people who didn't vote for that candidate, right? So by the time the real election for president happens, which is the electoral college voting for the president, it is as though 100% of a state's residents are either Democrats or Republicans. You point out Colorado, you know, was a swing state, meaning that Colorado could actually be shifted from one camp 
to the other, from Democratic to Republican or vice versa, with a little bit of campaigning. And that is the heart of the problem. This is what you're talking about when you say that Trump kind of writes off what he calls the blue states, right? California or New York. He, you know, he doesn't care when California is burning up with wildfires. He doesn't care if New York is dying from coronavirus because nothing he does is ever going to win over the, win the electoral votes of those states, right? So he gets to, those are called, those are what we call safe states. And that's what winner take all does. It creates safe states and battleground states. And the battleground states, which are only maybe three, four, five, six in any given year, are the only states that matter in the election. And they're the only states that both parties care about uh, when they're trying to win. I know Joe Biden is definitely, you know, saying he's going to be the president of the whole country. And I believe that he'll be a lot better about that than Donald Trump would. But we have evidence that both Democratic and Republican presidents focus inordinately on the interests of battleground states. And so, you know, when you said, I I, li- I would like it when Colorado, I, I, you liked it when Colorado was a swing state. Right. I understand that. that. That's a position you want to be in because you get all the attention. Right. And it isn't that Colorado shouldn't get attention. It's that Colorado shouldn't get more attention than all the other states, you know, um, right. we but should all we calling, should all be battleground states. You are calling on Michiganders to be magnanimous and say, OK, we understand we get a lot of goodies, but we're going to give it up so that people in California, New York can have more power. That's a little bit of a hard sell. I'm not calling I'm not myself calling on Michigan to do that. I, I understand that people generally act in their self-interest and I'm not expecting Michigan or any other current battleground state to suddenly give up that extra power throughout American history. I think the 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 proof is in the pudding, right? When people have power, they're not going to give it up willingly. What I think is the perhaps best potential path to a popular vote is states that are currently Republican-led states, but that are going to be Democratic-led states before long. I think Texas may be the best example. Texas is moving very quickly, demographically and politically, from the right to the left. Obviously, there would still be millions of Republicans in Texas, but when there is a majority of Democrats in Texas, watch out, because there is no way for the Republican candidate to win the White House without Texas's 38 electoral votes. If Texas still has a winner-take-all rule in uh, 2024, 2028, or whenever that state does flip, suddenly all of those millions of Republicans in Texas will be rendered invisible, just as Democrats in Texas are today. I don't think Republicans want that. And I hope that seeing that prospect on the horizon could lead them to say, you know what? Let's throw in our lot with the popular vote, because at least then it's just a battle of becoming more popular and trying to reach more people rather than trying to win in a system that we literally can't win in anymore. Talk about raw political power. That brings us to the Supreme Court. I know you're an expert on this. I won't take too much more of your time, but do you see any way the Democrats stop Amy Coney Barrett from being confirmed? Uh, A meteor strike? (laughs) Right. Maybe something like that. No, I don't. Maybe if she and we know she's not in the new Borat movie. So that right. No, I, I mean, about all the three name figures, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, may her memory be for a blessing, Amy Coney Barrett. And then I got a kick in the New York Times, Maureen Dowd's interview with Sasha Baron Cohen. I've got to watch that after I put this podcast to bed. Well, you know, I mean, look, the, the Republicans uh, and the conservative movement has for four decades uh, been engaged in a crusade to take over the federal courts. I think they were, you know, furious at not just Roe v. Wade, but the but the what they call the activism of the Warren Court and that era of expansion of rights, of expansion of democracy, right? They were fundamentally opposed to that. 
And they realized that it was happening largely through the courts and they they wanted to stop it. And so you've seen groups like the Federal Society and the Heritage Foundation really kind of marshalling their resources to build up a, a, an incredible stable of young and committed uh, right-wing ideologues that are now being uh, confirmed, uh, you know, in large batches to the federal courts, not just the Supreme Court, but to the district courts and the appeals courts all over the country. And you see them starting to issue rulings that are kind of shocking <laughs> and and uh, I think, you know, d- Democrats and progressives and liberals have for many, many years just failed to understand the importance of the courts to our political system, even as even as the, the courts have been delivering victories that they are very happy with from reproductive rights to gay rights. But, uh, you know, it, the, the court has had a majority of Republican right. appointed justices for going on a half a century now. And the the fact that we're about to have next week, days before uh, an election that could possibly be a landslide for the Democratic candidate, a court that is six to three uh, uh, Republican dominated, and not just Republican, but, you know, we're talking the the most conservative justices in a century on this court, is a really shocking uh, inversion, I think, of of the whole idea of representative democracy. You know, I know the Supreme Court is supposed to be the counter-majoritarian institution, and it's supposed to protect minority rights. And of course, it's supposed to do that, but it isn't supposed to be a complete, you know, negative image of the American people as a whole. If the American people are center to center left, which it, it appears that they are now, to have a court that is hard right is just, I think, a, a real recipe for disaster. Well said. And when Donald Trump said at the first debate between interruptions, he bragged on, I've appointed three Supreme Court justices, 300 judges, and I'm yelling in my living room. Isn't that enough? What do you want to do more of this for a second term? Because I'm worried about Donald Trump. It's part of the reason I do the podcast. Bring the concerns to light. And your piece, Radicalizer in Chief, Donald Trump, it just hit a nerve with me, a good nerve. I think you're smart. I'm going to be following you all the time. Give everybody in my audience an idea how they can follow you. Well, I, I mean, you can follow me on Twitter, just at Jesse Wegman, at Jesse Wegman, or you can read my uh, pieces in the Times. I, I I write unsigned editorials, and you just have to guess which those ones are. But um, I more frequently now write signed pieces, and so those are those those don't take any guessing. And those are the best ways. And uh, you know, the other thing I would say is go read my book. I would love it if more people read this book and educated themselves about the history and functioning of the Electoral College. Because I I think if nothing else, I just want us to be arguing about a history that we all agree on, rather than just misconceptions and myths that have really permeated the debate for the last two hundred years. Right. The name of the book. Let the people pick the president. And my parting gift for you, Jesse Wegman, a yes vote on Prop 113. (laughs) You convinced me. Thank you. Thank you so much, Craig. I really appreciate the conversation. It was fun. Next time. Take care. All right. You too. Bye. Gosh, it's hot in here. Did that toaster catch on fire? It wasn't that. You choked on that bite of burnt bagel. Why is everything all red? The heat is unbearable. Where am I? Excuse me, your dishonor. May I step in on behalf of my client? Mr. Silverman, proceed. Tell me one redeeming good thing your client did. He was a faithful listener to my radio show. Not good enough. He had decency and compassion for his family. He did end-of-life planning with Michael Bailey. The Michael Bailey? That is kind to your loved ones. That is smart. 
smart and way too decent for this place. Your client can go. And what about me, your despicableness? Why should I? Michael Bailey is my lawyer, too. Go on, then. Get out of here. <laughs> now, part of that was serious, and part of that was fictional. But you will die someday, and if you don't make a legal plan, the government will make one for you. Call my lawyer, Michael Bailey. His rates are reasonable, and he can meet with you and your spouse wherever you want and on weekends and evenings. 720-394-6887 or online at mblawllc.com. Sandler Training is one of the leading sales training and leadership development companies in all the world. If you're interested in increasing your win rates and revenue margins, increasing the number of salespeople exceeding quota, addressing sales manager professional development, reducing your turnover of sales personnel, it's all waiting for you at Sandler Training. Call my pal Dan Levitt at 303-829-2107 and tell him Craig sent you. Hey, Danny, what happens if somebody calls and says, hey, Craig sent me? Well, Craig, for the first few minutes, we'll probably tell some jokes about you. What? Yeah. And then I'll dig into, you know, what, what's going on in their world and whether or not I'm a fit for what, you know, might, might be able to help them or not. He's an easy guy to talk to. I've been talking to him for so many decades. Call my old friend, Dan Levitt, 303-829-2107. 303-829-2107. Tell them Craig sent you. Hey there, I'm not going to take a lot of your time. I've been a lawyer almost 40 years. My brother was a lawyer. My father, a Denver lawyer. My grandfather, a Denver lawyer. If you have a legal problem, call me. 303-861-2800. 303-861-2800. If I'm not the right lawyer for you, I bet I know somebody who is. 303-861-2800. Thank you. Now back to the Fred Silverman Show. What an honor to be able to interview a broadcasting legend, a journalistic legend, just the kind of guy that has done so many things and he's not done yet. His name is Bernard Goldberg. Bernie Goldberg, a star on CBS, too many Emmy Awards to even mention, other journalistic awards, HBO, Real Sports with Brian Gumbel. What an honor, Bernie Goldberg. Thanks for coming on my podcast. Craig, the pleasure's mine, but I am a legend in my own mind. That's that's where I'm mostly a legend, in my own mind. Well, that's a great place to be, especially in COVID times when you can't really interact with all that many people. <laughs> right, right. How goes your COVID life? Well, I think it's safe to say I've been in virtual, under house arrest since March, basically, February, March. And I'm playing it safe. I don't think I'm playing it too safe. I, I don't want to take any chances. So my wife and I don't go out to dinner the way we used to. We we take walks with friends, but, you know, at a safe distance. It's no fun. 2020, forgive me for stating the obvious, has not been a fun year. And you're doing it down in South Florida? No, I, I left there two years ago. Oh, I'm okay. Where are you? North Carolina. I'm in the mountains of North Carolina. Western North Carolina? Yep. All the way out west, almost almost near Tennessee. I have a sister in Hendersonville, so you know where that is. Not far from Asheville. It's about a half hour from me, yeah. 
Okay, cool. Small what a beautiful world, right? part. Yeah, it, it's like Colorado, only you started at a lower altitude. So it's beautiful out there. Well, speaking of Colorado, my mother grew up in Colorado, in Denver. Tell everybody about that. Well, I grew up in the South Bronx. And while most kids, little kids, were hearing the usual fairy tales and stories that kids throughout time have heard, I was hearing stories about how beautiful Colorado was. My mother loved Colorado. And later in her life, after my father had passed away, she flew out to Colorado. I picked her up at the airport and we drove out. To, we were staying, my wife and I were staying in the mountains uh, for the summer and we, we drove her out there. She was just in her glory. I can't tell you, Craig, how much you loved the state you live in. Well, that's great. And you told me when we chatted off air that she grew up on Colfax or not far from Colfax. That's a famous street. Do you know much about Schuyler Colfax? I just know that it's a major street that I believe goes east and west. And if you keep going west, you'll wind up in the Rocky Mountains probably. But this was many, I want to make clear, this was many years ago. She was born in 1915 and left to go to New York when she was in her, I think, late teens or early 20s and went to live with uh, an aunt. And then my grandparents moved from Denver back to New York. Well, you've traveled around the world and back so many times in your career. What did you think when you came to Colorado? I'm just envisioning your mom bringing you and falling over her memories of Colorado. That's got to be an exciting memory for you. There are certain places and certain things in certain places that are etched in the mind. For instance, in San Francisco, where I was based for CBS News for a while, the Golden Gate Bridge, I think, is the most magnificent man-made construction that I've seen. I've never seen the Taj Mahal, but the Golden Gate Bridge is magnificent. In Colorado, the Rocky Mountains are absolutely magnificent. I know I'm telling you and your your listeners what they already know, but you come from the South Bronx or later New Jersey urban areas and you go out to Colorado and you see those beautiful mountains, they they stay with you. They stick in your mind. Right. It's like a work of art. And the cool thing about it is that I look at the same work of art every day that your mother looked at. It doesn't change. And God willing, it never will. But I went my first year of college out to your neck of the woods because I got recruited by a college, Uppsala College in East Orange, New Jersey. And I went there to play basketball. And I was looking at your skyscrapers and they had just put up the Twin Towers. And I thought, this is cool. The mountains where I come from are cool. But to look out my school cafeteria and see the Twin Towers. So I went there for a year. A high school classmate of mine who was on the basketball team played basketball at Uppsala College. That's Charlie Dringus. Charlie Dringus. Isn't that something? It's not like I had a great career there, but the first game we traveled down to Georgetown and John Thompson was the coach. I didn't get in the game, but we gave them a game and then we beat Army the next week. And my coach was Richie Adubato. And he ended up being an NBA coach. And his first assistant was Ron Rothstein. 
and he ended up being oh, an yeah, NBA sure. coach as well. So sure, sure. that's something for a small New Jersey college. We were no Rutgers or anything like that. What was your Rutgers experience like? It's interesting that Rutgers in those days, at least we considered it a blue-collar ivy. I think we had 5,000 students. Now there are closer to 50,000 students. It was a place where a lot of the kids who went there, and I was among those that fit into this group, that was the first person in their family to go to college. Wow. So it opened up, it opened up my world from a relatively narrow world into, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm in class with, being with professors who are world-class professors, you know? So that was, uh, it was a great experience. I'm, I'm not a big fan of my alma mater these days where they've become a sanctuary campus. There's a lot of left-wing, uh, look, everybody on a college campus is liberal. I get that. But left-wing is something different from liberal. And uh, no, I know by the way, I have that. no idea. I have no idea what the demographic of your audience is. I may be offended. No, here it is. We're, I, I think we're fellow travelers because we're kind of caught between the two parties and we have a range of views. Ask me about a social issue, I'll tell you my opinion. I always regarded you the same way, Bernie. So let it rip, whatever you think. Okay. All right. I think, I think most college campuses have gone too far left. I think my alma mater, Rutgers University, New Brunswick, New Jersey, has gone too far left. The only time I get a call from Rutgers is when they want money. I've got 14 Emmys and three Columbia DuPonts, which are the broadcast equivalent of the Pulitzer Prize. And the only time they ask, they call me to ask for anything is to get money. And I, and I just say, no, I just won't do it because I don't want to support something I don't believe in. You think that maybe somebody at the school would call and Say, can I pick your brain? You've been in journalism literally more than half my, my life. They don't do that. Uh, the only thing they want is, is a contribution. I, and I gave them a contribution once. A, 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 for me, I think a good size. It was four figures, okay? Not, not great, but it was more than $1,000. And I gave it to somebody on the condition that he deliver it with a message that I want a say in, uh, I want a, a, a seat at the table for the conversation. You know, I don't want only liberals at the seat. The message came back that was less than pleasant. And I said, that's it. That's the last money you'll ever get from me. Did you get your journalistic start at Rutgers? Well, I, I was on the high school newspaper, okay. but I was a journalism major at Rutgers. Okay, yeah. cool. So you graduated from the journalism school and it's not like they're unaware of that. For me, I didn't, I had to look it up. I never associated you with Rutgers till I looked at your bio, but do you talk about Rutgers a lot? And I understand why you are pissed off about it. You've won all these awards. They could honor you and politics gets mixed up in everything. I remember, especially when I was in New Jersey, I found it different. You know, what was the predominant question I got out there was, you're from Colorado. What are you doing out here? And by the end of the first year, when I realized I was more likely going to be a lawyer than a professional basketball player, I said, what am I doing out here? And I went to Colorado College, which is a pretty liberal place. CU Law School, pretty liberal up in Boulder. But 
I'm not expecting big awards, but I, I hear you. And their politics is not necessarily my politics. But let's find out more about your politics. It's going on right let's now, Bernie. Let's do it. A lot of people remember you with Bill O'Reilly. I would occasionally be on talking about Colorado cases, Jean Benet, Columbine, Kobe Bryant, that sort of thing. But you were a regular and you were a paid contributor because you were great. And you had Fox News, CBS before that. Where are you at these days, Bernie? Tell everybody politically. This is the most fascinating time of my life. It, it would be fun to watch if, we, if it wasn't so scary. Right. I would describe myself as a conservative, but I'm not an ideological conservative. What I mean by that is I don't take a, a, a conservative position on everything. On social issues, I'm a libertarian. As long as it, nobody's getting hurt, I think adults should be able to do just about whatever they want to do. Right. Uh, on the abortion issue, pro-lifers would say, yeah, somebody's getting hurt, but I understand you're pro-choice. Am I right? Well, yeah, but I, but, but I understand the pro-life position. So do I. I understand that. I think that's, I think that's a moral position. Whatever you want to say about it, it's ending something that would have been a life. I mean, so I have no problem with people who are pro-life. I'm pro-choice as a practical matter. I, I think if, if some young woman or even a, a a married woman who has three kids already doesn't want a fourth kid. If you do it early enough, okay. But I wouldn't brag about it. I mean, right. But I, I, I'm, but I'm pro-choice. Yeah, who have you been voting for? Well, that's a, that's a very good that's a very good question, and I've written about this on my website. I wrote a line once that got an amazing amount of reaction. A single line. I said, I detest. Donald Trump, and I hope he wins in a landslide. What I mean by that, Craig, is I don't like Donald Trump's dishonesty, his chronic dishonesty. I don't like his nastiness. I don't like the fact that he's thin-skinned and has to respond to every criticism, no matter where it comes from. I don't like his character. So that's on the one hand. On the other hand, I don't like what the Democratic Party stands for anymore. I mean, I grew up in a blue collar family. Everybody in my family and everybody, and I mean everybody in the neighborhood was a Democrat. There wasn't a, Republicans were the rich people. I grew up in the South Bronx. Nobody was a Republican. So I, I think the, the biggest single question for this election is, does one want to vote for Donald Trump and put up with four more years of his chaotic, divisive presidency? Or does one want to vote for Joe Biden? And you don't know what you're going to get because he is, I think, a figurehead uh, for the Democrats. He got nominated because he was the least controversial of everybody. They, they figured Bernie Sanders isn't going to win. He's a socialist. Kamala Harris wasn't going to win because she's more to the left even than Bernie uh, Sanders. So the decision's going to be, do you want to put up with Donald Trump and his craziness. Mishigas is a word in my tribe's language. Right. I think the word Michigan may apply too, but that's my biases. We want to hear about your opinion. So do you want to, do you want to vote for, for Donald Trump and put up with four years of chaos? Or do you want to vote for Joe Biden and possibly, possibly get a president who moves 
to the Sandinista wing of the party and passes, uh, kills the filibuster, which means you only need 51 votes to pass something. And then, and then what do you get? You possibly get uh, packing the Supreme Court with liberal justices. Maybe you get two more states, liberal states, Puerto Rico and Washington, D.C., with four more liberal justices. What an amazing storyteller you are. You're building the suspense. I can hardly take it. Do we have to go to BernardGoldberg.com to find out the answer? Well, okay, I'll give you the answer. I'm sitting out the presidential part of this election. I've already voted. I voted a couple of days ago. I voted for Congress. I voted for the House and, and the Senate. I voted for local elections but I set out the presidential election. Wow. I can't bring myself to vote for Donald Trump because of his character, but I want him to win. I know that sounds crazy. I know that by not voting for him, a lot of people tell me just about every day that's tantamount to a vote for Joe Biden. I get it. I get it. I just can't bring myself. And you voted for him four years ago, right? No, I didn't. Oh, you didn't? I didn't. Let me tell you Donald Trump's story. He called me up in 2012 or late 2011. And he said, um, he called me up at home. You know, I I mean, I was on O'Reilly then and he probably liked what I had to say. And he said, I'm thinking of running for president. What's your advice? And I said, I'm a journalist, Donald. I don't give advice to people running for president. And then I added one more thought. I said, but if you decide to run, if you've ever picked your nose in public, or scratched your rear end while walking down the street. They're going to find out about it. And he's, you know, now anything he's ever done, including many things he's never done, like colluding with the Russians, everything is on the table. Everything is fair game. We're so polarized in this country. We're so partisan that the left has spent four years trying to launch a, a soft coup against him. I hate that, but I can't bring myself to vote for him. And I know how crazy it sounds. Please don't hit me in the head over it. No, Trump makes everybody crazy. And you're the guy who got a call from him. That's got to impact you. You are a native New Yorker. So is he. I look at him and I see Archie Bunker in charge with a little more sophistication and a nice suit. I don't like it. I don't like the racism. I see that, Bernie, and I'm not one to call people racist and I also see the misogyny. I just don't like the way he treats people. It was funny this this morning we were recording this late on a Friday afternoon. The podcast dropped Saturday morning. Trump said, yeah, I put on my calm character. I can do that too in that debate last night. But you know, that first approach for my first debate, a lot of people like it. And he said, I think that works better in life and in business. And I'm just thinking, in what world does that kind of behavior benefit you? Where is it rewarded? I, I have kids. I have young kids, Bernie. I bet you have family. He's not a good role model, is he? No, he's not. He's not. I've asked people, do you want your kids to grow up to be like Donald Trump? And some of them say yes. I mean, these aren't people I know. These are. This is like long distance through emails from when I was on O'Reilly. I'd get emails from total strangers. But you say, how does this do him any good? It, it, his performance in the first debate didn't do him any good. But he has 
passionate supporters, then not everybody who votes for him, let's say he gets 45% of the vote or 48% of the vote, whatever it turns out to be, only about 20, 25% are really Trump loyalists that would never abandon him no matter what he did. Those people love that kind of stuff. If he loses, it'll be because of that kind of stuff. If he loses, it won't be Joe Biden who beat him, despite what everybody thinks. It'll be Donald Trump who beat Donald Trump. And one of the reasons I'm so unhappy with him is I I like GOP values more than Democratic values. And he may very well bring on a Democratic president with his shenanigans, with his nonsense. That's a reason not to like Donald Trump. Now, by the way, there's still a week left before the election. Anything is possible. Bernie, I had Rick Riley on my show. He's a native Coloradan. And he wrote Commander in Cheat. I don't know if you read it, but... Commander in Cheat. Right, where he chronicles yeah, the, the golfing golf, cheating. Thing, yeah. I mean, it's, it's unconscionable. And when you read something like that, you're a sportsman. You've covered sports forever. To me, this guy would be disqualified from any sports league he ever played in because of his cheating. And now he says he won't accept the election results. And at the first debate, he tells the Proud Boys to stand back and stand by. Isn't that enough for you? Well, you didn't vote for him, but uh, it, it, that's frightening to me, Bernie Goldberg. What about you? Yeah, I think that's stand by and stand back. I don't think he knew what he was saying. I, a reasonable person can can conclude bad things from that. But I don't. I think he just... I don't think he knew what he was saying, really. I don't I don't think I don't believe he's a white supremacist. I don't believe he supports white supremacy. Do you think he has authoritarian impulses? I'm not even worried about that. What I don't like about him is the way he behaves. I don't think he's a would-be dictator. As a matter of fact, since you brought that up, let me let me answer it this way. I think the authoritarians are the people who think Donald Trump is an authoritarian. It's Twitter and and Facebook are the ones who are censoring the story about the Bidens. But I look at other authoritarian leaders who seem to dig Donald Trump, like Putin and the Korean leader and Xi in China. And I yeah, see I think this- he likes. I think I, I think he's got a weird fascination with tough guys because it makes him feel like he's a tough guy. Tough guys can take criticism. Donald Trump can't take criticism. Despite all, despite all the bad mouthing I'm doing of Donald Trump, I want to emphasize, and let me put it this way, I want to emphasize that I hope the Republican candidate for president wins. I wish the Republican candidate for president in 2020 were almost anybody else, but it isn't almost anybody else. So I hope, and I, I hope Donald Trump wins because he's the Republican candidate. But He's going to have to do it without me. Now, if somebody said to me, Bernie, you're in North Carolina. What if I told you with certainty that the state is going to go one way or another by one vote? By one vote. Would you vote for him then? Yeah, I would. I'd hold my nose and vote for him then. But since I'm pretty sure it's not going to be a one vote election, he's not getting my vote. But I hope he wins. If it is decided by one vote, just think how valuable this broadcast will be. What did you think of the debate Thursday night? Who won? Well, let's start with this. 
to his most passionate supporters, Donald Trump won. To Joe Biden supporters, Joe Biden won. We, that's a given. I think we decide who wins just about anything is based on where does the person stack up to our expectations? Well, based on his first performance in the debate, our expectations of Donald Trump were, holy cow, is he going to do this again? We had very low expectations. So based on that, I think he won. I think Donald Trump won because he didn't behave the way he did the first time around. The real issue to me is, does it matter? Is it going to affect the election? And that I don't know. Uh, but I think he did, he did fairly well. I think both he and Joe Biden are both allergic to the truth. But in a funny way, Craig, as much as I don't like Donald Trump, I find Joe Biden annoying, beyond annoying. I find him smug and sanctimonious. And I don't think he's very smart. He did okay. I think his message of, I'm going to bring America together. I'm going to represent everybody, including the people who didn't vote for me. I, I sort of wish Donald Trump had said that first to take the wind out of Biden's sails, because I think to independent voters, the few people who haven't made up their minds yet, I think that might make a difference. But I don't know if the debate in its entirety is going to move the needle one way or the other. But if it moves the needle at all, it'll help Donald Trump a little bit. Geez, I'm talking to a guy who, if you want an Emmy out there, just ask Bernie Goldberg. He can sell dozens because he's won so many. I want to ask you about TV because it's about appearance as well. How would you grade their appearance last night? Because to me, there were a couple things about these two guys that made me like the one over the other. And I bet you could never guess which which it was. But you're a TV pro. What did you see? If you're talking just about the shallowness of appearance, I think Donald Trump looked better. I think Joe Biden, while, while he is not the stumbling, bumbling, demented person that Trump supporters in the media like to portray him as, he stumbled every now and then, and he didn't look as strong as Donald Trump. That that's my take. What's what's yours? First of all, you're you've talked about your humble origins in New York. Do you wear cufflinks? Did you did I ever see you on Fox News or on CBS? What the, where did that come from? That because Trump always wears cufflinks, and oh. Joe Biden wears just simple button shirts like most people do. 99.99%. I have cufflinks, but 99.999% sure. of the time, I, I don't wear them. So I just looked at that and I say, that's an ordinary guy. And Trump, who has nice pearly whites, beautiful veneers, I've talked about it with my dental sponsors. And, and Joe's got the caps too, but Joe smiles and he smiles in a way it's like the sun coming up and you kind of get a kick out of it. And I thought he won the day with his smiles, whereas Trump was looking like he was constipated or scowling or he just that, didn't show his nice that, teeth that much. That I agree with. Trump always looks angry at these things. He looks like he's he, he's waiting for somebody to hit him in the head with a with a two by four and he's just gearing up for it. So I agree with you on that, Craig. 
And then what about Trump saying, I am the least racist person in the room with Kristen Walker, who's part black, part Native American, I guess she's more racist than Donald Trump. Why would anybody say something like that? Because he always talks in superlatives. What he meant was, I'm not racist. Why not just say that? Instead, I'm the least racist. I've got the best economy in the history of the United States. Everything is the greatest of all time with him. It's a character flaw. He's got to be not only better than the next guy, he's got to be the best of all time. And normal people listen to that, as, as I'm guessing you just listen to, to that kind of stuff, and you say, it doesn't, what is wrong with this guy? Right, and that brings us full circle to the expression Meshugana. Isn't that Meshugana? Right, and, and you want to talk about Meshugana, and I'm still saying I hope he wins. Well, then you know what that makes you. You know what that makes you, Bernie. But I bet your friends yeah. say that when you walk around or go out to dinner with them, right? Some no, I don't them. go out to dinner with them during the virus, but they say it doesn't make any they say it doesn't make any sense what you're saying. I say I get that. I understand that. Uh, what I'm afraid of is what will happen if the Democrats take over. That's what I'm afraid right. of. Now, why aren't you going out to dinner? It's because of COVID. And Trump says COVID, COVID, COVID. It's being covered too much. It's like Russia, 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 where I think he was guilty there, too. But my God, Bernie, COVID, didn't he bungle that? I know you didn't vote for him, but isn't he responsible for a lot of the problems America is experiencing? He, he bungled it in the beginning by getting into fights on his daily briefing with reporters. There were a lot of people who tuned into those in, back then. You remember that was many months ago. There were many people who tuned into them, especially older people, and they tuned in for one thing, information. They didn't tune in to see smart-ass reporter ask a loaded question and then the president fire back and get into a fight with that reporter. And I think that's what hurt him. And if he winds up losing, that's going to be another big reason he lost because of what happened early on. But he did a lot of good things. He, he got this vaccine going in record time. And what is that time? Last night he said it's, it's going to be here in a couple of weeks, folks. Now, you already said you can't believe a word out of his mouth. I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm shocked. I'm shocked that he didn't say in a couple of hours. I, I mean, mean, if it was the truth that a vaccine was ready for mass distribution in a couple of weeks, wouldn't we all just hunker down and wait for two weeks? Okay, we can do it. Wouldn't a smarter politician say, we're going to get it as soon as we can when we know that it's safe and effective? I hope it's tomorrow, but it likely is going to be, we hope, by the end of this year or early next year, but that's not a guarantee. That's a, that's a hope. But we're going to, but here's what I can promise you that we're going to get it to you as soon as we can. He's always sabotaging himself. Sometimes you wonder if he wants to lose because he says things that don't help him. But then Joe sometimes says things that does, that don't help him. That doesn't help him. For instance, last night, this is interesting, I think. Last night, he said he wants to do away with fossil fuels. Right. Forget about whether you think that's a good idea or not. That's not going to help him with 
traditional Democratic voters. Right. He, he tried to clean it up. And he said, well, we're going to transition by 2050 is what I'm talking about. Yeah, well, he didn't say that last night at the debate. Then he says he's against, he's he's ne- he's never said he's uh, that he wants to ban fracking. Well, he did, but he says he never said it. He managed to offend both wings of the party, the moderate wing and the Sandinista wing. Uh, again, I but don't know that what? debate. The, the, those wings are both united in their being offended much more by a guy named Donald Trump. That's probably true. Right. And he, he scored points in the debate, Biden, when he said, I'm not Bernie Sanders. I beat that guy. He has a point, doesn't he? It's not like Bernie's running against Trump. We've got a, a mainline Democrat, old school Democrat. I'm glad I don't know your politics, but I figured it out over the last half hour. I'm independent. I'm an island of independence. I voted for Mitt Romney. I was disappointed by Barack Obama. And you wrote a bestseller about the slobbering media. What was the name of your bestseller? (laughs) A slobbering love affair uh, about the media's embarrassing love affair with Barack Obama. That probably brought your house, but wouldn't you have to admit in retrospect, even though I thought with Reverend Wright and all of that, that he might be a radical and I worried about it. Now that we see Barack Obama post-presidency, do you think he's radical? No, I think he's he's left of center, certainly. And if he thought he can get away with it, would have been even further left of center. Let me ask you a question, Craig. Sure. Do you think let, let's let's just for argument's sake say that Joe Biden is a traditional middle of the road Democrat. Okay. Do you have no fear at all that he's going to be pulled leftward as a payback for the support that Bernie and AOC and the progressive wing of the party? There will be those pressures, of course, and that's why the more moderate Democrats need to get involved and the Republicans need to repudiate Trump so they can get back in the game in states like Colorado and New York. Chuck Schumer, I heard him just today. I don't know if he said it today or yesterday. He was asked about killing the filibuster. If you kill the filibuster, that opens the door to a million other things, not just packing the court. It, to all the things I mentioned earlier, making making Puerto Rico and Washington D.C. a state, states with with liberal uh, senators, lowering the voting age to 16 to get more Democrats to vote, letting felons in prison vote. That's all possible when you kill the filibuster. So they asked Chuck Schumer, a middle of the road, moderate, non crazy Democratic minority leader in the Senate. He said nothing. This is a verbatim quote. Nothing is off the table. Right. With Amy Coney Barrett confirmation at stake, they're playing hardball right now. Why would you take that away? Be like going into a football game and saying, "Okay, we're not going to throw any long bombs. Let them them think, you know, so Schumer's just playing politics. But Biden has already said he's a traditionalist. He doesn't want to do court packing. Will there be pressures? Of course there will. But yeah, I've, we both got each other's politics figured out, and I don't think we're that far apart. No, but but here, but here, but here's the, here's the thing, Craig. People who vote for Biden, and again, I didn't vote for Trump or Biden, but people who vote for Biden are rolling the dice that he's going to hold the line against the Bernie Sanders, Kamala Harris, AOC wing of the party. That's a big gamble. That's an awfully big gamble. 
I think it'll be like the Obama administration. You did fine then. The country did fine. I think the Democratic Party has moved. I think there are things the Democratic Party today stands for that Barack Obama would have been seen as a crazy left-wing radical if he ever suggested it. I don't think the center of the Democratic Party is in the same place as it was when Barack Obama was president. I think the party has moved to the left. No, I, I'll give you this. There are some people like in Denver, Colorado, who are elected officials who are socialists and maybe even communists. And you're the, the mayor of your old city, de Blasio. He was a communist, right? Yeah. He was a big fan of the Sandinistas, as I recall. Wilhelm. I never trusted that guy too much. And America rejected him. Democrats rejected him, by and large. He, he, he didn't even factor. But let's talk about sports, because I love sports, even though I was just good enough to be a lawyer. But you covered big time sports. You were one of the best. What do you see for sports? The ratings are down. Will they come back? Have we seen the glory years? And my God, all the athletes, all the athletes missing their season in high school and college. It's just tragic, isn't it, Bernie? I'm on a show called Real Sports, but I don't do traditional sports stories. I have very little interest at this point in my journalistic career to do stories about who's a better quarterback or who's a better shortstop. I don't do that. I do stories about big issues that could run on a mainstream magazine show like 60 Minutes. Those are the kind of stories that I do. But I'll tell you what the big story this year is. You mentioned ratings are down. Ratings could be down for a number of reasons. We don't know for, sh for sure. But one reason, one reason we must consider is that the NBA and the NFL, to a much lesser degree, the Major League Baseball, have become part of the Black Lives Matter movement. You can wear on your jersey only approved slogans, Black Lives Matter, say their names, things like that. But you can't wear Blue Lives Matter. As a matter of fact, you can't even say All Lives Matter. The play-by-play -play announcer for the Sacramento Kings in the NBA literally got fired right after he tweeted All Lives Matter. He was asked by a basketball player on Twitter, what do you think of Black Lives Matter? And he tweeted back, All Lives Matter. He got fired in the blink of an eye. That's part of the cancel culture. And sports has bought into that. Here's what I believe. And I think you asked a very important question about sports, especially in this day and age. So let me tell you what I think the most important thing is, Craig. I think athletes have rights that their league and the team management gives them. So if it's okay with the league and the team owners, they can take a knee during the national anthem. They can stay in the locker room and not even come out for the national anthem. They can say, as a hockey player said before a playoff game, racism is everywhere. They can talk about systemic racism, which means that it's in the fabric of the country. They can do all of those things. Good for them. But you know what? Fans also have rights. They have a right to say, I didn't tune into this game to get a lecture on what a crummy culture I live in, a crummy country I live in. And I think that's one of the reasons that ratings are down. They say, I don't want to hear this crap. I don't want to hear it. 
I don't believe in racism. I don't like racist. I won't have anything to do with racist, but I don't want to hear about what a racist country the United States of America is. And they tuned out. Athletes have rights and fans have rights. And they're both playing out before us on television. I feel sorry for you that you didn't have the Denver Nuggets to root for her, although maybe you did in North Carolina. But tell me, Bernie Goldberg, do you still watch sports or are you among those who are not so interested anymore? Well, I wasn't that interested this year for two reasons, and that was one of them. But I watch. The other reason is I'm a, I'm a big Yankees fan. I root for all the teams I grew up with. It was a 60-game season. I mean, how seriously can you take the World Series when it's not a real season? How seriously can you take basketball when they started playing, then they stopped playing, then they stopped? So then, that's a reason I and many others aren't as interested this year. But I'm going to be honest with you, Craig. If I'm watching a game and, and the play-by-play guys start to talk to me about what a wonderful thing the NBA is doing with their uh, concern for racism in America. I change the channel, not because I'm, I'm a, not because I detest racism. I hate it. I won't wash my hands in the same sink with a racist. But I don't think this is a racist country. I think there are racists in a country of 330 million people, but that's a big difference and saying it's a racist country. Tell us what you were watching instead of sports, because I watch too much news, and that's not good for your head. What are you doing for entertainment? Will you watch Borat? What do you think about New York City Mayor Rudy Giuliani and his pickle, so to speak? I try not to watch. I was on cable TV for a long time, as you know. I try not to watch it because I don't want my head to explode. I, You know what? When I watch, I realize how much information that. I'm talking about the opinion shows, how much information they're disseminating that that's factually incorrect. And it happens on both sides. I, so I try not to do that. I'll watch a game only because at least it's real. At least it's not scripted and it's not ideological. I'll watch a game. But this has not been a good year. It just, it just has not been a good year for entertainment or anything else. It sucks. But let's wrap up by telling our audience, you've won so many awards. Which one is the most meaningful to you and why? Well, the team that I was on and I, the producer and I, broke the story of concussions in the NFL. Everybody knows about concussions in the NFL. Everybody knows. They think everybody's always known about it. That's not true. We broke that story. And Roger Goodell called my boss and said it was tabloid journalism, and he was very, very unhappy. And every syllable in that story that we reported on was was accurate, and they changed a whole bunch of rules in the NFL to make it safer. It'll never be totally safe. It's a violent game. But that that's something I'm proud of. Can I? Would you mind if I talk to you for a minute about my website? No, I want you to. Because there's something about it I wanted I wanted your your audience to know. If I, I hope they all come to my website, which is bernardgoldberg.com. But I need you to know this because I don't want to waste your time. If you want somebody who gives you information, I write columns for the website. 
and I do an audio report once a week and a column once a week. And there's a Q&A that I'll answer your questions. And I directly answer the questions on every Friday. If you want somebody who's going to tell you only what you already believe, if you want somebody to validate the opinions you already hold, don't waste your time. BernardGoldberg.com is not the place for you. Sometimes you'll agree with what I say. Sometimes you'll disagree. Sometimes I hope you'll passionately agree, and sometimes you'll vehemently disagree. As in this conversation you and I have had, Craig, sometimes people will agree, sometimes they won't agree. But what I'm not going to do is I, I respect people who come to my website too much to pander to them. That's what cable news does in, on their opinion shows. They pander to the audience. They tell them what they already believe, and they won't challenge their beliefs. I write what I honestly believe. That's the only thing I promise you. It's what I honestly believe, and it's based on a very long career in journalism. 28 years at CBS, about 10 years on Fox, over 20 years on HBO's Real Sports. But that's all I promise you. I don't promise you that you're going to agree with me or like what I say. There are times you will, but there are times you won't. So if you want somebody to tell you what you always believe, BernardGoldberg.com is not the place for you. I hope you'll come over and give it a shot. And I hope you like it. I'm going to. It's going to be one of my favorite places, BernardGoldberg.com. And you, you put all those different links together. Keep going. Well, I was going to say the one thing that I'm going to repeat, I, I don't want to beat a dead horse. I just respect the audience too much to pander to them. Uh, too many people who offer opinions, mostly on cable TV, pander to their audience. You know why? Because it's good for business. Pander to the audience. They'll come back for more. Give them what they want. Tell them what they want to hear. Tell them either Donald Trump is wonderful or terrible, and they'll come back depending on their point of view. I'm not doing that. I'm telling you what I honestly believe, and it's based on a long career in journalism. That's, that's all I can offer you. I hope it's good enough. If it isn't, no hard feelings. <laughs> well, it's not just a career in journalism, but those DuPont Columbia University Awards that you won, they're really timely right now. You talked about concussions. You're a New York City kid. For whatever reason, I loved baseball history, and I focused on Lou Gehrig. I didn't realize he was part of that concussion study, and I knew he was part of Lou Gehrig's disease, but tell everybody the connection of the great Lou Gehrig to concussion research. Well, here, here's the thing. This is a, We were working on the story, and the producer fed me a piece of information that Lou Gehrig was hit in the head. And when you get hit in the head and you get a concussion, you're not supposed to go back and play. He played 2,000. 130 consecutive games until Cal Ripken, he held the all-time record. You're not even supposed to think too deeply or read, or you're supposed to rest your brain. He went back to play the very next day. And I said, where did we get this? I never heard this before. And it was an intern who went to the New York City Public Library, went to the files, and found an article that Lou Gehrig was hit in the head and played the next day. Wow. Do you think that contributed to ALS or nobody knows? It may very well have. That, that's the thing. It may very, very well have. One of the great lines 
I don't know if your audience has watched, watched The Sopranos when it was on. But all these, uh, all these guys are in the Bada Bing Lounge. And Sal, who's the uh, guitar player in the, the E Street Band with uh, Bruce Springsteen, right. uh, his name escapes me right now. Who am I thinking of, Craig? Oh, boy. It's, uh, I'll get it. Keep talking. Okay. <laughs> anyway, Sal says to the, all the guys, all the mafia guys in the, uh, the Bada Bing Lounge, it's absolutely amazing. Lou Gehrig had Lou Gehrig's disease. <laughs> you know? Yeah. <laughs> As yeah. if it was a total coincidence that Lou Gehrig, you know, they named it after Lou Gehrig, you know, the ALS. Oh, well, not ALS. Yeah, ALS, they named after Lou Gehrig. Stevie but Van Zandt. That's the Stevie guy. Van Zandt right. is play, playing uh, one of the mafia guys. It's amazing. Lou Gehrig actually got Lou Gehrig's disease. And all the idiots in, in the Bada Bing Lounge are being, oh, geez, that's interesting. I didn't know that. Careful. Uh, Some of those guys went to Rutgers with you. You're right. You know, uh, the, the the head guy went to Rutgers. Uh, Tony Soprano went to Rutgers. Is that right? I, yeah. I, I, How did you know that? How, James Gandolfini. I just figured. Yeah, he, went to, he was a Rutgers guy. It's the state school. But, but then you first DuPont, and I just want to bring it up for the last interesting thing in the day, because here on Friday, President Trump announced some big agreements with some tiny Arab countries with Israel, which is not nothing, because now Israelis can fly to the east, which they never could before. And you, Bernie Goldberg, you won a big award for your story about United Arab Emirates. You tell yeah, us. Yeah, that was and, a big story. And tell me what you think. Is this a big deal? It might appeal to the Jewish vote. You used to live down in Florida. Is this going to make a difference politically? And I'm a Trump detractor, but I like peace. But I'm wondering at what cost. It brings me back to these authoritarians. And I think about a journalist named Khashoggi who got executed, apparently without any consequences, to Saudi Arabia. And I think Saudi Arabia will probably in the next week announce an agreement or something like that. I'm just wondering, I love peace, but at what cost? You've traveled to that part of the world. What do you make of all of this, Bernie Goldberg? Well, I'll, I'll, give, I'll give you a very unsophisticated, unpolished take. It's always better when people sign peace treaties than when they're at war. Forgive me for stating the, the, no, the, the obvious. No, so stipulated, but so, at what cost? Is it okay? I mean, it, does it mean we're going to have dictatorships? Is that an acceptable cause to make peace? Well, we're not going to have dictatorships. Israel is making peace with these countries because it's in Israel's interest. These countries, if they have dictatorships or kingdoms, they had that long before they signed any peace treaty. It's unreasonable, I believe, to expect Israel to say we're only going to sign peace treaties with democracies, because there aren't any in that part of the world, except for Israel. So I have no problem with it. You know what? Let, let's stipulate that peace is great before we say shalom to each other. But here's my concern. My old man, who was born on the old west side, probably like your mother, the old west side of Denver, he would say there are a couple kind of people in this world, Craig, people on the take, and people who are straight shooters, like Bernie Goldberg, you know, made money the old-fashioned way. They earned it. And I look at Tony Soprano, and he was on the take, right? Maybe not Gandolfini, may he rest in peace. 
But I look at Donald Trump and I think he's on the take. And I look at Bibi Netanyahu, I used to admire him, but I think he's got some Ghana in him and he's a little on the take. And I know those dictators in that part of the world are all on the take. And if these guys on the take make a deal, is it okay? Should we say that's good? That's my consternation, Bernie. Well, you don't live in Tel Aviv. If you live in Tel Aviv, you want as many friends in the region as you can get. Right. So, I, mean, I mean, I think it's that simple. Right. I'd like to take a new vacation other than to Turkey or to Cyprus. Right. No, I, I get it. It's a great point. This is the kind of wisdom you dispense at BernardGoldberg.com. I'm going to make you one of my favorites. I'd like you to think about these things. Maybe write a column about it. And Bernie, I can't tell you what a kick I've gotten out of talking to you and learning that your family comes from Denver. That's just the coolest thing. Well, it's it's been my pleasure, Craig. I, I enjoyed it. And a plug again, if, if if you want some opinions that you may like or you may not like at times, check out my website, BernardGoldberg.com. It's been a real pleasure being with you, Craig. I enjoyed the conversation. Thank you, Bernie. Be well. Stay safe and healthy. Bye-bye. You too. Bye-bye. Dan Levitt, Sandler Training. Hi, Dan. Craig sent me. Craig Silverman? That's him. Man, can I tell you a good story about Craig? I'd love it. Once Craig took his dog, Tuffy, to a singing competition. For what purpose? Well, the dog was going to be in a dog food commercial. And how did they do? Well, Tuffy did fine. That dog, he could sing. So did they get the job? No, they didn't. There was a problem. And what was that? Well, Tuffy only sang when Craig started singing. And when that happened, everybody around started laughing. You know, Craig's not a good singer. But Craig's a great talker. You know, he sure is. Now let's talk about how Sandler can help you. Great. My sales team really needs help. You've come to the right place. Sandler Training can help you big time if you are a salesman or a sales manager. If you would like to learn more about Tuffy or me or how to make sales, call my old friend Dan Levitt, 303-829-2107, 303-829-2107. Tell him Craig and Tuffy sent you. This is the Craig Silverman Show, and I'm Craig. Our democracy is at stake. It's never been more important to let your voice be heard. Join the conversation and fight for our democracy. It is our duty and our constitutional right. Follow The Craig Silverman Show on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at C. Silverman Show. Be a part of the change. Now, back to The Craig Silverman Show. Welcome to Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. This gentleman has been in Craig's Lawyer's Lounge numerous times. He's an exceptional guest. His name's David Kopel. David, welcome back to the lounge. Craig, thank you very much. I'm, I'm enjoying the lounge and all the great hors d'oeuvres you've got set out. The wet bar with no charge. It's just a fantastic place. I'm glad you noticed. The changes during the pandemic are a bit unfortunate, but you get your own hors d'oeuvres. Nobody else is going to touch them. I think that's a nice touch. How about you? Yeah, and I appreciate the free masks you give with a little hole for the uh, the straw for the drinks. 
Yes, I had to lay off the paralegals due to COVID-19, but I hope you appreciate the little robots who are assisting you. They are fantastic and they're rather cute. You know, I've been watching The Good Place, which just proves that the robot-like creatures can be pretty fun. Well, there you go. And by the way, they are for purchase. You can make me an offer and I may not be able to refuse it. Tell us about your life, David Kopel, and I will properly introduce you as the smartest guy in Colorado, or one of them anyway. You are an attorney. I know your lineage because your father, Jerry Kopel, was one of the best instructors I ever had, albeit just for the bar review, but it helped me immensely, and he kept the class entertaining. So you are pretty much a genius. You are an attorney. That's why you're in the lounge. You went to the University of Michigan Law School, as I recall. That is correct, which I still continues to have one of the best football teams of any top 10, of any top 10 law school. And they just pulled the boulder where, because of an outbreak, you can only be with one other person. What a choice to have to make in college, my God. Yeah, but I feel really sad for today's current college students getting these lockdowns in their dorms. I mean, they'd be better off living at home in their parents' basement and, you know, having more opportunity to go out. I mean, part of the college experience is hanging out with your friends and, and that's being destroyed. Right. But don't send them back to the parents. I have a high school senior and I'm telling you that you don't need Halloween to be frightened because high school seniors like to get together. What stage of life are you at in the Copal home? Do you have any kids at home? Uh, no, all, all three kids are up and, and uh, running in their careers. One is a, uh, a doctor. One's a lawyer who specializes in immigration law, uh, defending people from the government. And the third is an elementary school teacher. And so they're all very happily and uh, busily engaged. So you've got it made. I mean, think about people with high school kids. It's not easy. And they say that's the way it's primarily spreading. So, Sam, if you are listening, be careful for your mom and dad's sake. But, David, what do you make of this whole pandemic situation? You work at the Independence Institute. Is it okay for the government to order us to stay home, to not congregate? What are the limits in your mind? Well, you know, what's going on is certainly not what you'd call a, a quarantine in, in the classical sense. This is the quarantine. It's, it's an Italian word from the olden days when somebody who was sick would have to stay home so they don't go out and spread it to other people. The, uh, the idea of forcing healthy people to stay home is, is quite a novelty. On the legal side, a lot of it depends on what particular emergency powers exist and what's been given to the governor, for example, in the governor's discretion. I would say, unfortunately, in Colorado, the legislature passed a, a very broad law, which gives the governor, I think, I think too much unilateral power. And, and of course, whatever the governor, any governor does in light of the uh, pandemic still has to comply with the United States and, and Colorado constitutions. And we're, we're seeing some court decisions to that effect. Right. A prior contestant in Craig's Lawyer's Lounge, Dan Domenico, now a U.S. District Court judge, he ruled in favor of a church that complained about the limitations on crowd size. And it looks like Bob Enyard was one of the plaintiffs. What a twisted world. We remember in our neighborhood, my boys and I, 
Back in the days when Mitt Romney wanted to be president, they were having a fundraiser in our neighborhood, and there was Bob Enyard yelling and leading a chant, Romney funds abortion, Romney funds abortion. And my boys and I can still hear that ringing in our ears. And so could all the people at this $1,000 gathering. Anyway, that's memorable. What do you make of that litigation in U.S. District Court in Colorado? Well, I, I think uh, Judge Domenico did did the right thing in following the law. And he's a certainly a guy who knows the Constitution quite well. He was Solicitor General for the state of Colorado under Attorney General Southers, which means he was the guy on point for arguing major cases in the Colorado Supreme Court or the, the U.S. Supreme Court. He's also been, on, like me, an adjunct law professor at Denver University where he taught constitutional law. So he definitely knows his stuff. The crux of his ruling is the government doesn't, well, first of all, like all good judges, the, the rule is you try the case and not the party. So I, I, I'd agree Bob Enyard is, among other things, a ridiculous person. But that's not something the judge is supposed to take account of. The judge looks at, at the legal claims on each side and, and analyzes them in a neutral way. The existing legal doctrine from the U.S. First Amendment is that government doesn't necessarily have to give religious exercise some kind of special treatment or exemption. But the government can't treat uh, religious activity more harshly than it, it treats other activity. And so, as, as Judge Domenico said, well, if you can open a, a, a Walgreens or restaurants or all these other places and, and say that they're essential businesses or that we're going to let them open, then you've got to let churches be open under the same conditions. So, for example, he said, of course, the you can say there's a mandatory rule that people who aren't in the same family have to stay six feet apart. And his order says, yeah, these, these churches are allowed to fill up to whatever capacity they can have as long as people stay six feet apart. And of course, that'll, that'll vary on the, the particular church building. But the point is, if you can be six feet apart in, in other locations, indoors for prolonged periods, then there's no justifiable reason for subjecting churches to a harsher standard. I've been avoiding my synagogue. Didn't even go on the high holidays, watched it on Zoom. How about you? Are you going to any services? Unfortunately not. And I, I should be doing better on that because, of, among other things, one of my uh, my best friends from law school is actually, he's now retiring from his legal career. He's a, a minister in, in Salt Lake City, and they're on, on Facebook Tuesday evenings and then Sunday mornings. So I, I should be more organized about it, at least attending some of those. You know, the, the Catholic Church that my my family and I belong to is partially reopened in, in, in compliance with the capacity limits, but I'm and it, it mainly serves CU students. So I'm haven't been doing that. And I guess part of my excuse is with limited capacity where you gotta sign up in advance, I'd I'd rather those spaces go to the, the people who, who want it the most and, and especially including students for who are away from home and for whom that church community can be especially important. You're just scared of them like I am of my teenager. I get it. But I'm no expert on Catholic services, but isn't there a lot of greeting other people, peace be unto you, and kneeling and getting up and singing? Isn't that kind of different than a Walmart? You know, the, the classic stereotype of, of what you're supposed to do in Catholic churches, stand up, sit, kneel down, 
repeat and you just go through that a few cycles and then uh, then you're done for the the service the kneeling isn't any any issue because you're still in in the same place they have little fold down things for your knees and it, it's pretty common in, in all kinds of churches to have some kind of handshake of peace or something like that and actually the D- D- judge domenico's order specifically says that it's okay to continue the the handshaking ban and, and people can be flexible on, on those kinds of things. And you you know, you, you can wave to somebody or, or smile and say hello or give them a peace sign rather than having to shake hands. It's not a, uh, the handshake is, is a nice tradition, but the Holy Roman and Apostolic Roman Catholic Church aims to be a universal church for all people in all times, all customs and whatever. And there are some societies that are that do handshakes and, and some don't. So I don't think the handshake has ever been a, uh, a universal mandate. While we're talking about Catholicism, how about the Pope and civil unions? On the one hand, he he can say whatever he likes. On the other hand, he's supposed to say what he likes within the scope of long-established tradition and teaching. You know, it's not supposed to be the kind of thing where, you know, you, you have one president who's got one policy, and then there's a new guy who comes in, and he's got different policies, and then a third guy comes along, and there's a, a new thing. There's there's supposed to be a a more consistent interpretation of what's called the repository of faith. And I think there are a lot of people who are concerned that he's uh, more into the the politics of a lot of things than the, uh, the theological analysis. So I'm wondering, are, are, you, are you saying he lacks the authority to make that kind of pronouncement? That I think there are some people who would argue that, and to really have a good pro-con on that, you'd, you'd need to have people who are experts in, in canon law, but which I don't mean artillery, but the church law, sure. exactly. Yeah, and I, I, I don't know the, the, the answer on that one. Isn't it a harbinger of gay marriage comes next? We've seen that in Colorado, America. That is in, entirely possible. And the, the question that religions are always facing is— how much do we stick with the the tried and, and true and, and our, our founding values versus how much do we think we should change to keep up with the times? And one of the interesting sociological things that's happened in society is the churches that have tried the hardest to say, oh, just because we thought that 20 or 50 or 500 years ago, and it's always been part of our thinking, uh, that doesn't mean we got to stick with it now. Maybe that's good in some cases, but the, the churches that have tried the hardest to keep up with the times are what are called the, the mainline Protestant denominations, the Episcopalians, Methodists, Presbyterians, that crowd. And they're what were historically the largest denominations within them have been the ones that have tried the hardest to be politically correct. And they are the ones that are just hemorrhaging membership over the years. I mean, you, you go to, I'm sure it varies church by church, but the age demographic in an average mainline Protestant church is is pretty old. You know, it's maybe even older than a, a Fox News evening audience. And the, the ones that are getting the younger crowd tend to be the ones that one way or another present themselves as more traditional. It's like, no, we're not, we're not this or that depending on the 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 trends of the day we have one thing we're for that and we're going to stick with it so when you're asking you know somebody who's 23 years old is it worth getting out of bed on a sunday morning going down to church and 
participating. And if I do that, they're going to try to have me come back on some kind of like Bible study on Wednesday. Well, the, the churches that are most successful in attracting people these days are the ones who are, in a sense, countercultural, in that they're saying, we, we got this thing and we think it's so important that we just stick with it, whether it's popular or not. And that's the kind of thing that for a lot of people seems to be more enticing to make a commitment rather than a, a church where you can go and hear, you know, a lot of the same platitudes you could hear on CNN. Right. Who knows what the future is? I don't know if it's going to ruin religion, whatever. People are staying home more instead of going to church. A lot of people are staying home and cleaning their firearms. Firearm sales are through the roof. David Copel, a world-renowned expert on firearms and law, constitutional law, he's just fantastic on this subject. Has there ever been a boom in firearm sales quite like that which is going on now? No, not nothing so sustained. There have certainly been there have been booms at all all kinds of times. We don't have the sales records from from 1775, but I bet that was a pretty big year for people being conscientious about acquiring guns. And we've we've certainly had them in the in the 60s because of urban riots and, and also fear of gun control. But partly because the U.S. just has a larger population. But what started in, in March has been at high levels and sustained high levels, bigger than everything before. I mean, definitely Bill Clinton and Dianne Feinstein and Barack Obama were all outstanding gun salesmen. And in, in, in that regard, accidentally helped the, the farms industry quite a lot. But no, nothing's, nothing's ever existed at, at, at this level for so long. Nothing quite sells guns like coronavirus. But I think that human beings, each and every one of us, can be pushed to the point where we want a weapon to be able to defend ourselves. Is that a good thing or a bad thing, David Copel? It's a thing that whether one thinks it's, it's good or bad, it's something that is absolutely going to always has existed and, and probably always will. Uh, sort of, you know, the conventional wisdom of, you know, what sells guns or especially what sells a lot of guns quickly is, is two things. One is gun control and one is crime. When you have gun control, and the, the president pushing for anti-gun laws, people say, well, I better get this gun now while I still can. And then fear of crime is obviously something very big, too. Now, crime rates are, you know, uh, armed robbery, a homicide of all types, including by firearms, all those Crimes are down by about half compared to their peaks in the early 1990s. But we saw the, the picture this summer and, and in Denver of rioters, looters just being allowed to go wild, the police being forced to stand down, mobs coming into neighborhoods to, to intimidate people, come to their house and scream at them with a bullhorn and, and make threats. And, and again, the police can't or won't do anything about it. So many, many people have said, well, in, in this kind of situation, uh, maybe I'll call 911 and somebody will pick up, but that doesn't mean that anybody will ever come to help. So when it comes to protecting my family, I've got to take the responsibility as uh, the first responder. Each firearm comes with a constitutional right. What does the Constitution mean when it comes to firearms? Really, it comes down to the U.S. Supreme Court, which is undergoing quite a transformation Ruth Bader Ginsburg to Amy Coney Barrett, 
First, David Koppel, do you see any way that her nomination will be stopped or should be stopped? Certainly no way that it will be stopped. And we can thank the opponents of Brett Kavanaugh for that. There's been a lot of escalation in the judicial wars over the decades. And absolutely nobody has more responsibility for sleazy escalations than Joe Biden, whose years of service in the Senate include as, as chairman of the Judiciary Committee. And then after the ridiculous, extremely dishonest character assassination campaign against Brett Kavanaugh, I think the Republican senators as a whole have said enough is enough. We can do it and we're going to do it. And when I, I wrote an article for the, the Denver Gazette a few weeks ago about the history of, of a Supreme Court nominations and what always happens is the, the Supreme, the president always nominates when there's a vacancy. And the Senate confirms if the Senate is politically minded to do so, and and if not, not. But there, there, there is the, the people are saying there's some kind of precedent that you can't have a nomination or a confirmation in an election year or so close to an election. That that's just a political talking point. Speaking of political talking points, I recognized when Merrick Garland got blocked by Mitch McConnell that the reason was a form of democracy. The Democrats didn't have the votes, and the Republicans did. And they were able to block Merrick Garland. And now, with the Republican president, they have the power, and God love them. But Cory Gardner and other Republicans said they were sanctimonious. We're doing it so that the people can decide. When it's this close to an election, we trust the American people. So if they really trusted the American people, well, Donald Trump's on the ballot. We've seen who his nominee is. If you like her, then vote for him. If you don't, then don't. So, I mean, the sanctimony isn't the hypocrisy and the sanctimony something that we can talk about? Oh, sure we can. Absolutely. And your your description there is correct. But if Clarence Thomas had died of a heart attack and instead of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, right. Hillary Clinton were president, and the Democrats had a, had 53 in the Senate, of course they'd push through that nomination immediately. And Charles Schumer would be out there talking about how wonderful it is, and we're following the historical procedures, and all of his sanctimonious hypocrisy about this being illegitimate, which is just baffle gab and, and bluffing. The, the shoes would be on the other foot. Well, that brings us to the Senate race. What do you think is going to happen? I think Cory Gardner has zero chance because Trump is toxic and Cory Gardner did not stray from Trump. But you're the expert, David Koppel. Tell us what's going to happen and why. What should happen? Well, I, I think you're you're right about what will happen. I'm not sure I would say zero, but he's 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 quite an underdog, and as as you know, some of the national groups that have been running ads have been pulled out in, in, in Colorado and are, are running them in, in other states. But in, in, in that way, life isn't fair. I mean, as, as Gardner's record shows, he is one of the most bipartisan people in the Senate, one of the guys who's the m most likely to not vote the way the majority of his party votes. You know, somebody else who's who's like that and has a very good reputation in, in that regard is Senator Susan Collins of Maine. And she's trailing in, in her race, too. You know, the, the fact is, if, if you're a Republican senator and there's a Republican president, you're going to vote for on the, the, the same way 
as in accordance with the president's agenda most of the time because it's, it's the Republican agenda and you got elected as a Republican. And so then that allows people to go around and say, oh, Trump or Collins votes with Trump X percent of the time, even though they in this Senate have been among the most independent of all senators. But yeah, Trump is a, uh, in, in Colorado, absolutely a dead weight on the Republican Party as a whole. Right. Well deserve it. But Lauren Boebert embraces him emphatically, which makes me suspect the judgment of her or, frankly, anybody who embraces Donald Trump at this point. But God knows she loves firearms. David Koppel is knowledgeable about firearms, preeminent expert. Have you ever seen a candidacy quite like Lauren Boebert? Tell us what you think. Oh, yeah. I mean, say there have been tons of, of candidacies like that over the years of someone who's enthusiastic, not that and, and passionate, not that experienced on the issues or with, with prior experience in government, but manages to catch some wave in their district of they say, no, we you know, we want a fighter. We want somebody who's going to stand up for us. But here, here it's a gunslinger. It's in your field. I'm just wondering, have there been a lot of candidates, female, who have run on the gun issue and patterned Lauren Boebert's desire? Yeah, I, I'd say over the last 20 years, there have been plenty of, of female Republican candidates who have pretty enthusiastically in, in embraced the Second Amendment issue, you know, done ads with guns, things like that. I mean, you know, Gabby Giffords, when she was running for election in Arizona, mm -hmm. uh, had some famous videos of taken of her, you know, out, out at the gun range uh, shooting AR-15s. No, and I saw Christy Nome, the South Dakota governor, shooting some birds out of the sky. But Lauren Boebert, with her ad where she's got the guns on her hips, she's wearing a tight T-shirt, showing off her frontal assets in a way that's extraordinary for a politician. I just have never seen anything on my Colorado TV quite like that. Have you? Oh, I, 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 no, I, I think you're right in terms of major Colorado races. But that's just kind of the luck of the draw of when that kind of thing comes to Colorado. Remember uh, Joe Manchin, the senator from West Virginia? Right. He had a famous ad when he took out a rifle and blasted through the Obama. It was their equivalent. It was their cap and trade uh, okay. climate. Uh -huh. climate control bill. So, you know, West Virginia is a, a pro-gun state and certainly her, I think she's, uh, the Boebert district is a pro-gun district. Now, David Koppel, I have Jesse Wegman on the same podcast. He's a New York Times editorial writer. He's also an attorney who went to NYU. Was that your undergrad? Do I have my David Koppel right? No, I, I went to, uh, to Brown for undergrad, but I did uh, adjunct teach Second Amendment at, uh, at NYU one semester. Well, I know you had an NYU law connection. Anyway, he's a yeah. bright guy, and he wrote that editorial about Trump being the radicalizer-in-chief, and you're a pro-firearms person, but when he tweets, liberate Michigan, and then Proud Boy or militia equivalent show up in the statehouse with long guns, and to me it was intimidating. Is that a good or a bad thing for firearms people? Oh, it was probably negative overall in terms of the publicity and, and how it got played. I mean, obviously, the people with their guns were doing it as a sort of uh, accessorizing to show a statement. I mean, you can make a statement by 
carrying a sign or you or how you dress and this was in in kind of in that latter category that they did not perpetrate any violence or threaten anyone but they they were making a statement and kind of showing off in a way that I, I think was was counterproductive you know sort of like those those guys who in some other states try to promote open carry which which is a legitimate cause if they want to promote it but you know like walking walking around with an AR AR15 and a sling on their back and having a bunch of guys show up at some coffee shop and sit down is it their right to do it yeah but is is it the the best way to advance the cause i i don't think so well let's talk about the presidential debate this last one firearms never came up in either debate although trump always says that biden's going to take away your second amendment do you believe that especially since you're going to have six conservatives on the court well, we may have six people who are in the broadly conservative category, but Chief Justice Roberts, as reported by CNN this June, has been working pretty hard and successfully to stop the Supreme Court from taking any kind of Second Amendment case. And in fact, uh, last August, when the, the court did have a case about a very unusual and quite extreme gun control law from New York City. Five senators, including uh, Senator Whitehouse from uh, Rhode Island, I believe Senator uh, Blumenthal from Connecticut, wrote a threat letter to the Supreme Court in, in the form of an amicus brief. But they essentially said, if you dare to rule against New York City in this case, we will restructure the court. So, you know, the idea of court packing is some extraordinary response to Justice Ginsburg's passing and the confirmation of a successor really isn't true. They've they've been the leaders on the judicial issues among the Senate Democrats threatened it, the Supreme Court last year, just for even considering the possibility of of ruling against uh, New York in, in a gun control case. But anyway, so Roberts is a, uh, as we saw in Obamacare as well, is a guy who was easily intimidated and bullied, and the Supreme Court eventually ended up dropping the case and, and not making a decision. But it's it's just Trump hyperbole. Joe Biden has never advocated taking away people's guns. Isn't he the guy who says, get a shotgun and that'll scare off anybody, right? Well, yeah, and, and also shoot him in the leg, which um sure you with your district attorney's experience and lots of work you did with the Denver Police Department, you know that that's a ridiculous and, and dangerous thing to say. I, and know, I mean, I, I know I know it's ridiculous because they don't teach that at the police academy. But you see what happened in Minnesota with the, that guy going into his car and you would think that they could have shot lower and stopped him from going to get a knife on the floorboard. Yeah, I think you're, th- you're thinking about the Kenosha case with uh, Jacob oh, yeah, Blake. Kenosha, uh, excuse me. Right. Yeah in Wisconsin. Well, I, I guess I, I disagree with that. I've represented the International Law Enforcement Educators and Trainers Association and the International Association of Law Enforcement Firearms Instructors. I've represented them in court and I've I've taught at their annual training center. And no, if you are dealing with something that is a deadly threat, like a guy who is within contact distance and driving and getting a knife, your objective is not to injure them with something painful like shooting them in the leg. The objective is to stop that immediate threat and shooting at the center of body mass is is the only way that can be done. 
And of course, even even shots to the center of mass don't necessarily stop a person immediately. It was only probably the, the final shot that hit the spinal column that saved that officer's life from a repeat violent criminal who was going for a knife, had been tased and just kind of shrugged it off. Right. It's a tough issue. And and police have a, a brutal job right now, especially during this pandemic, without a doubt. But the dominant political issue of the day, and I talk about it all the time and it influences my vote, is Donald Trump. But let's go on to the ballot issues. And are there any that particularly grab your attention in Colorado, David? Well, I, I have to say uh, Proposition 116, because that, that is an Independence Institute project. We are a nonpartisan organization. We don't support candidates in, in, in partisan races, but we, as allowed by law, do very actively participate in ballot issues. So 116 would cut the state income tax rate from 4.63% to 4.55%. It's a small income tax rate, but at a time when a lot of people have economic distress and uncertainty and, you know, they're having situations where the their money runs out before the month does and they get another paycheck. If they do get a paycheck, it'll it'll help people. So we're, we're certainly for that. And I'm certainly for that. And then related to it is number 117 from Colorado Rising Action, which says is Essentially, it's a bill to close a a loophole in the in the taxpayers' bill of rights. The taxpayers' bill of rights says if the government has a raises a, a fee on something, that's fine, and you don't need a, a vote of the people. You know, if the library raises the over the fine for overdue by twenty five cents a day, or the the city rec center changes the towel rate from $1 to $2, or the University of Colorado raises its tuition from 12000 a semester to fifteen. All those things are pe- things that people choose to buy. They've got alternatives to doing that. And the Taxpayers' Bill of Rights, I think, wisely uh, said that's not the kind of thing that we need to ask the taxpayers as a whole for permission. But the problem is the legislature has now started structuring all kinds of things that are in fact things you have to pay, which sounds like a tax, not a fee, and used all kinds of creative accounting so that they call an enterprise, which the University of Colorado is. It doesn't, it gets most of its money from tuition and things other than the state government. But things that are really just internal transfers within government get classified as an enterprise. So now we have a huge amount of our state budget, billions and billions and billions, that is completely off the books and the taxpayers have no control on. And so Proposition 117 says, when you get a something that's gonna charge over $100 million in fees over a five-year period going forward, let's ask the taxpayers if, if they wanna do it or not. Nice. Independence Institute studies these things and you get an educated opinion from David Copel. What about 113, the national popular vote, do away with the Electoral College? Are you for it or against it? Oh, that that's actually another one I do have a particular interest in. And, and this, this national popular vote, it doesn't do away with the Electoral College, which would require a constitutional amendment. It's to try, it's an attempt to kind of evade the Electoral College. And it would say that, so Colorado has nine electors in the Electoral College. So on your presidential ballot, 
you it said actually above the president, when you voted for U.S. Senate, you voted for Cory Gardner or John Hickenlooper or one of the other candidates, and it was a direct vote for them. When you vote for president, you're not really directly voting for the candidate. You're voting for a slate of electors who are pledged to vote for that candidate when the Electoral College meets in early December. Right, and winner takes all right now, but with the, the national popular vote, you will go with whoever wins the popular vote once a certain amount of states join. Colorado is a big deal in this battle. But I wanted to pick your brain on just the constitutional basis of the Electoral College. Well, I, I think the, the, the there's a clear answer in Colorado, which is unique to Colorado. And I wrote an article for the Denver University Law Review Forum that was published a, a few weeks ago. The Colorado Constitution of 1876 guarantees that Colorado's presidential electors will always be chosen by a direct vote of the people. And so for Colorado, the National Popular Vote Compact is a flagrant violation of the Colorado Constitution. The people of Colorado are the ones who get to choose the electors, period, end of question. The Colorado Constitution settles it because instead of our Colorado electors being chosen by direct vote of the people of Colorado, our Colorado electors would be chosen based on how the votes go in California and Maryland and New York, where people obviously they can't vote for Colorado electors. The Colorado electors aren't even on the ballot. Right. But let's throw the law aside. I'm going to give it all to you that it's unconstitutional. You shouldn't do it. You can't do it. But if you were starting all over again, would you come up with a system like the Electoral College? Is it fair? Is it right? Is it just? Oh, absolutely, I think. And it's an important thing for a country like the United States, which at the time was a large and diverse country with big states, small states, medium states. And they said, how are we going to get these things where people are of all these different religions, different ethnic backgrounds, the economies in, in, in states differed a lot from one to the other. How do we keep all of them together as a united states of America? Well, part of the way you do that is you have a system where the minority has some protections against being bullied by the majority. You know, back in 1787, concerns will be, well, what if, what if the big states like Pennsylvania, Massachusetts, and Virginia gang up on the little states like Delaware and, and Rhode Island? And the way the Constitutional Convention addressed that was to say, well, we're going to have part of the government that is really controlled on the, the basis of population, and that's the United States House of Representatives. But we're also going to have we're not going to be just on that. We're not going to just have the majority always gets its way no matter what, because they'd seen when you try to do th things like that in the, in the Greek city states and others, you quickly devolve into mob rule and, and the tyranny of the majority. So part of the minority protections in our constitution are that each state has two senators, whether it's a big state or a small state. So the big states predominate in the U.S. House, but the smaller states have a, a fighting chance in the Senate. And the Electoral College works the same way. Basically, the, the formula for allocating electors does overweight small states. So it gives South Dakota a relatively larger 
say per per capita than California. And I, th- I think that's the, the right thing to do. We don't want a country where California and, and New York and Pennsylvania or in Florida and Texas have most of the population. And so they decide everything that happens. It's a more balanced system where the, the little guy and the people in the little states get some extra help, not, not to dominate everything by themselves, but that the, it's part of the checks and balances. What about the people who argued that it was a compromise to get the southern states in and about its slavery? People who say that are just stupid. They've got no no clue about the history of the Constitution or anything like that. There absolutely were compromises made to get the southern states in, but the Electoral College was not one of them. And the, one of the one of the, the ways you can tell people don't know or don't care about history is the way they go around saying this or that is some kind of like product of Jim Crow or whatever. You know, Barack Obama, who was a uh, defender of the filibuster during part of his U.S. Senate career, tried to filibuster uh, Supreme Court nominee Samuel Alito, then turns around and says the filibuster comes from Jim Crow, which is just idiotic and, and recklessly uninformed. The filibuster dates long before the, the Jim Crow era. And the Electoral College was not a compromise for the benefit of, of southern states at all. It, w- it was a compromise for the benefit of small states. So it was something that would be that would help Georgia, but not Virginia. It would help uh, Delaware, which was a slave state, but not Maryland, which was larger in, in population. One of the compromises that did exist in the Constitution was Ten of the, the there were twelve state delegations. Rhode Island boycotted the whole thing. Ten of the delegations, including the ones from slave states, wanted an immediate ban on the importation of slaves in the United States. But South Carolina and Georgia said, no, we lost too many slaves during the, the American Revolution. We need at least a temporary period uh, when we can import slaves. And if not, we don't want to join the Union. And so with that kind of, you know, line in the sand. The other 10 states, like you know North Carolina, Virginia, Maryland, all of them slave states that wanted to ban slave imports, they gave in to South Carolina and, and uh, Georgia and said, okay, Congress, as the Constitution said, Congress can ban the import of slaves, but not until 1808. So that's a pro-slavery compromise that was in the Constitution. To describe the Electoral College like that is, is absurd. It's premised on a widespread misunderstanding of the three-fifths clause in apportionment for the U.S. House of Representatives. Gosh, I, I, I hit a nerve with that one. What about the argument that so many people are disenfranchised voting for a president, like Republicans in Colorado? We used to be a swing state, but every Republican voting for Trump, it's not going to matter. Colorado is not going to vote for Trump. So why even participate? Oh, yeah, and you, you can, if the states can remedy that, that situation themselves if, if they want. For example, Nebraska and Maine say that two of our electoral votes will go to whoever wins statewide and other electoral votes will be allocated by congressional district. So if so, for example, in 2008, John McCain won Nebraska as a whole, and he won two of the three Nebraska districts, but Obama won the Nebraska district that's based in Omaha. So of the five electoral votes from Nebraska, McCain got four and Obama got one. 
Maine has the similar kind of thing where they have two congressional districts. And as it turns out, Portland is pretty reliably Democratic, but the district for the rest of the state is, is a swing district. And so that, that gets contested. And Colorado could, if the legislature chose tomorrow, or when they come back in January, could do a similar kind of thing. We could allocate votes by congressional district. We could allocate votes by percentage statewide. So if a, one candidate gets 60% of the vote, then they get 60% of our presidential electors. And if they only get 50% plus one, then they only get 50% plus one of the presidential electors. And that we're, we're fully free to address the problem you identified without having to do anything that would violate the Colorado Constitution. Well, I think my late father would have said, and a monkey could jump out of my tuchus. I mean, it's, I suppose it's possible, but I don't anticipate any kind of effort to divide up Colorado's votes like Nebraska. We disdain Nebraska. Can we agree on that as Coloradans? Well, I think that's a very snobby attitude considering the, uh, you know, the University of Nebraska symbol, that giant N on it, as everybody says, it stands for knowledge. Uh, so I don't don't see why you'd want to look down on our uh, Nebraska cousins. I ain't got um, no knowledge like that. But, 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 but yeah, besides that, the fact is, the obviously, the, the Democrats have a trifecta, have a lock hold on the uh, Colorado offices right now. And so if they did something to make it fairer, like the Nebraska or Maine situation, that would mean instead of Colorado's nine electoral votes being guaranteed to the Democrat, that instead the Republicans might win, you know, two or three or, or four electoral votes in, in some elections and Democrats wouldn't want to allow that. And, you know, that, that you know, that, that that's how it's played. If, if Colorado ever got back to a more balanced political situation, then it's possible a reform like that might be enacted. David Koppel, in our last few minutes, you've been so generous with your time. I, I just want to talk about the media. David Regular on Colorado Inside Out. I've appeared occasionally, and I'm kind of ashamed that for a while there, I was supportive of Donald Trump. I've turned the corner in that regard. And back in the day when I did back Trump, I felt a little chilliness over there at the PBS, but now I understand it. And I have to say, David Koppel, that I admire you for a lot of reasons. Your intellect and education are obvious, but I admired that you saw through Donald Trump, and I wish I would have been as smart as you. I'm not expecting you to comment on that now unless you want to. He is the, you would agree that Donald Trump is the dominant political issue of 2020. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there were, you know, in 2008, there were sure a lot of people who were very eager to get to the polls to vote for Barack Obama, who was you know, seen as this kind of messianic figure by his most enthusiastic supporters. It, it's probably good for America that Joe Biden doesn't it isn't that kind of candidate. He's more just an, an average Joe and, and, you know, not seen as the Messiah. But plenty of those people who got to the polls early so they could vote for Obama are going to the polls early now so they can vote against Trump. And you bring up Barack Obama. I was part of talk radio. I've reviewed the history, and I think there was a lot of chinned-up anger against Barack Obama, and I may have been part of it. Jeremiah Wright frightened the crap out of me, hanging out with Weather Underground people, Bernadine Dorn, Bill Ayers. I worried that Barack Obama was some kind of far-left radical. But now that we've had him out of office for a while, now that we saw his eight years in office, and he did work with Joe Biden, who's moderate in my mind, 
can't we acknowledge now that Barack Obama was not nearly the radical that some on the right would have had us believe? I think the, the the best answer on that comes from uh, maybe uh, from some of his autobiography, his biographies, which which go back to his his college and and law school days, and he was very much in the radical crowd. You know, the the people who read Franz Fanon, the, this racist guy who talked about how it's it's great for uh, Algerians to kill French, you know, in, innocent French in in the Algerian War of Independence, like killing just innocent French women and children was some kind of authentic liberatory act, which was, of course, a, a vile view in, in, in violation of all the laws of war, among other things. And Obama was was very much part of that scene. But one of the things he said early uh, in talking with his friends is like, there's all, you know, all my friends, they're like so hardcore about being radical, and they just talk themselves into it, and they're never going to get anything done. So I think this was a guy who who had sincerely radical convictions, but also was much more pragmatic about wanting to get things done. And so he he got done what he could by playing within the system. And of course, that requires you to uh, move away from a lot of radicalism you might still feel in your heart. You remember he was there was a time when he was uh, staunchly opposed to gay marriage. You know, I don't think that would, he was for when he ran for Illinois Senate from a very left-wing district in South Chicago. Then when he moved up to a bigger stage, he was against it. You know, he was against it in 2008 when he ran for president. You know, then, then he changed as the political situation allowed. So I, I would say he he moved the country as far to the left as he prudently thought he could right. uh, and, within the circumstances. Well, let me concede your point, which is he did what he had to do for political expediency. But once he's out of office, to me, that's the most revealing, and he has not moved in a radical direction. Well, I'd I'd say the the campaign speech he gave at the John Lewis funeral was uh, not the unifying Barack Obama of the 2004 Democratic Convention, but it was a uh, a, a pretty hardcore leftist and and false indictment on, on a lot of political issues. But I will also say to his credit, he's done a, a good job of saying occasionally, which is something I wish he'd say more, you know, to these radicals on college campuses, is look, you, you don't even have a right not to hear some opinion you disagree with. You don't have a right to shout down a speaker and then physically assault him and drive him off campus. So I, I, I uh, appreciate uh, what he said on, on freedom of speech. I, I think if he said more on that, that would be uh, be really helpful because he does have obviously a lot of credibility with, with many folks. I never met the late John Lewis, but people who knew him said that Obama delivered the kind of eulogy that John Lewis would have appreciated. So that would be my defense of Barack Obama. He pleased the people who most matter when somebody dies, in my judgment. And I've softened on Barack Obama. He wasn't my favorite I'm a man in the middle. I'm glad you joined me again in Craig's Lawyer's Lounge on the Island of Independence. It's been too long. Do you want to make any more news? I remember last time you came on with me, you took on Dudley Brown, and uh, other people have done that since. Dudley Brown has stepped down. Do you want to make any big news today? Or I think we've had a great conversation. I'd say on, on the, the Dudley Brown thing, I, I think there are, there are a lot of very sincere pro-Second Amendment people who have uh, given a lot of money to 
uh, Dudley Brown's various direct mail organizations and maybe haven't gotten nearly as much of a return in pro-gun progress. Isn't that what you uh, call bang for your buck in firearms it's, world? Anyway. It, it, yeah, it, it, it's a group that's uh, over the years been pretty low on the bang for the buck. In, in my view, but, you know, maybe with some new people in there, um, even though Dudley's not out of the group, at least he's stepping aside to the side, perhaps. So hopefully it'll, the, the organizations will improve and, and donors will get more bang for their buck than they have in the past. Well, stay smart, David Copel. Stay safe, stay healthy. And thanks a lot for returning to the lounge. I hope you enjoyed the hors d'oeuvres. Uh, they were delightful and I'd, uh, I'd be uh, happy to come back sometime. Thank you. Have a good weekend. David Kopel. When we talk about medical directives, what sort of qualities are we looking for there? You're looking for somebody who cares about you, somebody who wants to take care of you, but also somebody who's not afraid of making that decision because, you know, bad things might happen. You know, if, if you have a, a son or a daughter who you know, absolutely, you know, is a stereotypical mama's boy and can't imagine anything bad ever happening to his mom. And then suddenly has to make a decision about what kind of surgery mom needs to have, or, you know, are we going to, what treatment option are we going to have for mom and paralyzed by, oh no, I can't have anything bad happen to mom. Not the right person. So you want somebody who can look at a situation, still loves their, still loves the person, but is able to do, do what's right and do what's necessary for your parents or for whoever you have that you're acting on behalf of. Call my lawyer, Michael Bailey. His rates are reasonable and he can meet with you and your spouse wherever you want and on weekends and evenings. 720-394-6887 or online at mblawllc.com. Hey there, I'm not going to take a lot of your time. I've been a lawyer almost 40 years. My brother was a lawyer, my father a Denver lawyer, my grandfather a Denver lawyer. If you have a legal problem, call me, 303-861-2800, 303-861-2800. If I'm not the right lawyer for you, I bet I know somebody who is. 303-861-2800, thank you. Now back to the Greg Silverman Show. Hey, Troubadour, are you ready, my simple man? I am. Tell everybody about your song, Simple Man. Simple Man is about being in the present, and it's about recognition that so often we're not. The song imagines someone who comes into town who's more mindful of his his, uh, everyday existence and focuses on the moment. And the narrator of the song sings, I am not a simple man. And he wishes he were more, he wishes he were more calm with the moment. It's about mindfulness. Yes. Did you invent mindfulness? You know, you could have made a fortune. It comes naturally to me most of the time. The simple pleasures. You are a simple man. And well, I'm not sure how to take that. Is is that like simple? Simple Simpleton? Silverman, it goes together well. Okay, Simpleton, maybe. That too. But you have some lines in there that are apropos of the times. I think this election is simple, man. You figure out who's supporting Donald Trump, and then you vote against them. 
That's yeah. simple, man. I mm-hmm. think so. But what about the elements? Fire up in the Colorado mountains. I know it's near and dear to you. Wow, we talk about it on our frequent walks. It's dry out there. I hope we get some snow. Oh, looking for snow right now. That east troublesome fire quadrupled in size yesterday. It's frightening. We taped this earlier in the week. By the time this drops Saturday morning, may there be plenty of snow on Shabbat. Let's listen to this song. But before we do, I like the piano. Who's playing that piano in Simple Man? Piano is played by Mark DeVere, my buddy and bandmate. And I hope you're out there listening, Mark. Hope things are well. All right, everybody, give a listen. Simple Man by David Gunders, our troubadour. Thank you, Dave. Thanks, Greg. Fast, you barely catch. 
This is The Craig Silverman Show, and I'm Craig. Our democracy is at stake. It's never been more important to let your voice be heard. Join the conversation and fight for our democracy. It is our duty and our constitutional right. Follow The Craig Silverman Show on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at C. Silverman Show. Be a part of the change. Now, back to The Craig Silverman Show. So that, my friends, is our show. Thank you for listening. This is American History, and we cover it every week. Thanks for being part of it to my sponsors. Really appreciate you guys, my loyal listeners. Thank you, my guests, Jesse Wegman, Bernard Goldberg, David Koppel, my beloved troubadour, Dave Gunders. Thank you. See you next Saturday. Bye. Thank you for listening. Tune in live every Saturday morning, 9 to noon, Mountain Time. Visit thecraigsilvermanshow.com for the podcast, blog, and more. Be sure to subscribe on all major podcasting platforms to be updated when new episodes are available. This has been The Craig Silverman Show.